That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. You want to go to an NBA basketball game? You want to go? Well, you can go to Sunday's Charlotte Hornets Blazers game at Moda Center, 6 o'clock tip, and you can sit in the 300 level for 4 bucks. That's your get-in price. And I'm sure you could move down and maybe get a little better seat pay for. Well, Lamit Week had a story publication pointing out that uh, the Blazers recently had a game where you could get in for as little as $2. Not a typo, the tabloid says. Two bucks. Half price of a coffee shop latte, it reads. Seat Geek and two George Washingtons gets you in the uh, 300 level for a Blazer game. It's four bucks on StubHub right now. And yes, you got to park. You might have to eat or you can bring a sandwich and smuggle it in. But we're hitting on something that dovetails nicely with yesterday's show. We were talking yesterday about the loss of connection that fans have with Trailblazers, Inc. One Center Court, the address of Moda Center, team headquarters. Dwayne Hankins, team president, Joe Cronin, the general manager, Chauncey Billups, the coach, you the fan. Why don't you feel as connected to the Blazers as you used to feel. Yesterday, we did about 35, 40 minutes on the topic. We talked specifically about the dismal television ratings that the Blazers are suffering with this season. And uh, the Blazers' local TV ratings down 49%. And this is in a league where the majority of the teams in the league are enjoying a rise in their local TV ratings. Some of the teams that are struggling and talking about going over the air next season are going over the air because their regional sports networks have gone bust. The Phoenix Suns, the Utah Jazz, those in the media world will tell you that those teams will eventually go back to having their games on cable, but they have pulled back and decided that, hey, you know what, we're just going to go over the air, we're going to get wide exposure, we're going to make fans, we're going to connect with fans, and I... And I really miss the days when the Trailblazers were available a handful of games on KGW-TV throughout this season. And I'm sure you can think of other times that they popped up on other stations, but I just remember that, and I remember thinking, gosh, that's a wonderful public service, so to speak, that even if you're not subscribed to their cable package, you can get a uh, sprinkling of games on national television whenever they show up on a nationally televised game and on KGW for, you know, it was like five or seven games a season. And I thought, wow, that's a real way to really connect with your fan base. 
We talked yesterday about the reasons why you're not watching the Blazers games, and I suspect some of the same reasons are the reasons you aren't going to Blazers games. But I want to talk about what has caused that loss of connection between you and your once favorite NBA franchise. Is it still your favorite franchise, or are you just turned off altogether with the NBA? 503-417-7575. Tell me why you fell out of love with the Blazers. You used to love this team. I know, because whenever I criticized the Blazers, swaths of people would say, you're a hater, look at you, you're an outsider, you don't understand, you don't get it, never mind that I was born in the state of Oregon, never mind that I've been watching this franchise up close since 2002 uh, and from a distance before then. Uh, Never mind any of that. You love your team, and you didn't like when anybody was criticizing it, and yet... Now, I find that you have joined the chorus of criticism. You are demanding more of your franchise. You want better ownership. You want better coaching. You want better general managing. You want better play on the court. You want better players. And frankly, I think from the front office of Trailblazers, Inc., you would like to just feel a little bit of connection and love. And Anna said it on yesterday's show, like I thought it was a real astute observation, as she said, I, I just don't feel connected to this team. I don't know the players. I don't feel, I don't feel like I, I have a connection from the franchise. And she was that kid, right? She was that kid who, you know, obviously she's born in Taiwan. She's talked about that, but she grew up in, uh, you know, in her living room listening to the Blazers games and watching the Blazers games on television, and could never have afforded to go to a game, but you play this sound, and she gets a smile on her face, like a lot of you do, because you remember it was Bill Shonley, wherever you may be, and you had a connection, you had an ambassador who was one of you and connected to you. Is part of the loss of connection with the Trailblazers tied to the fact that you don't feel connected with the media personalities who bring you the teams on radio and television? Is the loss of connection due to ownership in general? Is the front office just not marketing this team, not the outreach and the efforts to reach to the public and sew this franchise into the fabric of your family? Does that not exist? 503-417-7575. Or is it as simple as the fact that, you know, the play on the court's not that good. You can get in for $2 on some nights, $4 on other nights, because, and by the way, that's embarrassing for the Blazers, but you can get in for that price because there's no demand, right? There's no demand for it. That's why the tickets are going for 4 bucks or 2 bucks or whatnot. And when there's a better opponent in town, like the Denver Nuggets, yeah, the prices go up a little bit, but... It's not outrageous. You can still, you know, your get-in price to get in to see a Blazers game is incredibly affordable right now, and yet uh, the market doesn't lie. You can go see the Nuggets game on Friday night. You can get in for about 19 bucks. You want to see the Hornets? $4. So you're really paying for the opponent, right? You're not paying for the Blazers when you're buying those tickets. And I want to know why you don't feel connected, because I know you're not connected. 503-417-7575. What is it about? Why don't you feel like, you know, you need to be there? Why don't you feel like you need to be wearing a Blazers jersey? And I can tell you, I can see it at my kids' school as well. A few years ago, several years ago, decade ago, 
12 years ago, whatever it was, I could go over to my kids' elementary school or middle school and I could see kids wearing Blazers jerseys all over the place. And I would always check the jersey they're wearing. Was it uh, Gerald Wallace? Was it, uh, you know, Darius Miles? Was it a Brandon Roy? Was it a Marcus Aldridge? Was it a Damian Lillard? And I, you know, I'd always look and go, okay, what are they wearing? What are these kids wearing these days? I'm not seeing it right now. I'm not seeing a lot of Blazers jerseys, and the ones I do see are like throwback, oh, that kid still has a Lillard jersey. 503-417-7575. Let's talk about it. Let's go out to Trent, who is called in. Trent, lead us off. Get on base here. Hey, John. Thanks for the call. Um, I was just thinking about this, and I listened to the podcast this morning, and part of my fandom passed away when Paul Allen passed away. You know, right or wrong, he had passion for the team. And it just hasn't been the same since he's been gone. You know, I remember the 80s. I would come home on a February night, and me and my dad would sit down and get ready to watch a Blazer game. And that meant the world to me, and those memories are priceless. But I'm just so disinterested, and I'm really disinterested in the NBA, just like I heard you talk about the All-Star game last weekend. It's just, I don't know if I'm just old man, get off my lawn or what, but it's just kind of sad. Let me ask you this. Uh, do you have other I'm an old man, get off my lawn moments in your life that have nothing to do with sports where, you know, you're criticizing kids walking through the crosswalk, saying, look at those kids there, you know, or do you have other moments like that or is it just as it pertains to this? Well, I do have other moments, but lifelong Oregonian, the Blazers have been a special sports franchise, you know, and I go back to the Kiki Vandaway days. I go back to Clyde the Glide as a rookie, like I go back to very special times. And I remember Brandon Roy's rookie year, me and my dad got to go up to Portland and watch him play the Chicago Bulls. And that night was so cool because we were in the, sitting in the same section as Sean Lee, you know, and my dad and I got to go and say hi to Bill. And, and, and those are special memories, you know. And it's just, I don't know what it is, but not only me, I mean my family and good friends here, we, you know, here we are in the third week of February, and, you know, I just had to look this morning to see that the, the Blazers were like the fourth worst team in the league. Yeah, and look, you, you look at the standings, you look at the product, you know, I ask you if it's, you know, do you have other get-off-my-lawn moments? Then, you know, if you're just having a bunch of them, you know it's you. But if you're mostly kind of hip and with it, and you're not that guy and you're still upset about what the Blazers are doing, it could be the Blazers. In fact, it probably is the Blazers. I think it's an interesting point about Paul Allen. I wondered when Paul Allen passed away how the franchise would be different. And the former assistant GM of the Blazers, Mark Warkentine, who was Bob Witsit's right hand, he was also Jerry Tarkanian's right hand at, at UNLV. Mark Warkentine told me one time, years and years ago, I was criticizing Paul Allen, and he said, hey, man, he goes, this franchise is really lucky to have Paul because there's not a lot of other billionaires that would come in and just write blank checks, pour a bunch of money into the franchise, be okay not having a return on your investment. And, you know, Paul's really trying to win. And, and he's right to a certain extent. Like, I think, you know, one of the good things of Paul Allen's ownership was, you know, Paul clearly went for it. One of the bad things was he didn't always – get it right. He took some swings and he misses. But 
I'll take that era, and I'll take the Bob Witsit era of Blazers basketball over what we're currently watching because it was evident in two decades plus of making the playoffs, never missing, it was evident that they were trying. They were trying to win. They weren't okay being in the lottery. They knew it was the loser's lounge. They were looking over at the same old teams sitting in the lottery every year, and they were going, "Uh uh-uh, not for us. And it really wasn't about how many games do we have to win to get people to renew their season tickets. It wasn't about, you know, what's the cap or the top of our payroll that we absolutely just don't want to spend beyond. It wasn't uh, about all those things that the Blazers right now are probably huddled up trying to figure out. You know, they're probably huddled up right now trying to figure out, you know, the the new win total for this franchise. It was 28-and-a-half at the beginning of the season. I think it's down to like 25-and-a-half. Is that right, Stephen, about 25-and-a-half? 22-and-a-half, uh, actually. 22-and-a-half. So the Blazers are got to be huddled right now going, hey, if we win 25, how does that change the calculus on our season ticket renewals versus winning 19 or 20? And I don't think it does anything to it. Because I think we're at the point of no return for Blazer fans. I think Blazer fans who love this team and will sign up, and I don't want to call you a sucker because I don't think you're a sucker. I just think you you this is what you have, this is what you love. You're going to sign up, you're going to renew your season tickets no matter what they do on the court. I've talked to you, I've seen you, you're not suckers. But there's just a faction of fans who are going to say, hey, that, that no, no amount of success, no amount of losing on the court and lack of success on the court is going to cause me to you know remove my tickets. But there's a whole bunch of other people in the middle who are not front runners, who have to make a decision every season, and maybe they have a limited amount of disposable dollars, and they go, you know what, this is um, uh, this is a decision I have to make, and I'm not here to see a team win 25 games, 22 games. Mike in Portland. Mike, welcome to the conversation. So, John, you know, there's many reasons why the NBA basketball is, is at all-time low. But one of the reasons was somewhere back in the day, somebody said people like Michael Jordan, Magic, these kind of guys don't make great coaches. In order for an NBA team to be coached, they have to be coached by a mediocre coach, somebody that couldn't play the game at a high level. So you start getting all these run-dumb coaches coaching NBA basketball. That was one of the mistakes. Yesterday, John, you said that uh, the European basketball players could come over in, in back in the day and play. And you mentioned Sabonis. I'm going to tell you something. Sabonis could not guard Shaq. That's why they had to put no, no, Brian nobody Grant. Could, nobody could guard Shaq. Let's be real. But, but Brian, Brian Grant was given the task because Sabonis couldn't do it. So, you know, I'm just throwing that out there for you. But anyway, yeah. man, that's one of the reasons why the NBA – is at an all-time low. You got right. bad coaches coaching it. Yeah, I, I I think the quality of play in general is problematic. But I do I do think there's some examples. I get what you're saying about great players not being great coaches. It's the same reason why you know Ted Williams couldn't be a hitting instructor, and Barry Bonds struggled to be a hitting instructor because they were like you know hit the ball, 
You know, <laughs> just hit a line drive. Just hit a home run. Um, and Michael Jordan couldn't relate to uh, athletes that wouldn't put in the work and wouldn't struggle. But there are some examples of great players who became great coaches. You know, Lenny Wilkins is in the Basketball Hall of Fame as a player and a coach. Coached on the Dream Team. Joe Torre. Joe Torre was a Hall of Fame player. Made night All-Star games. National League MVP with the Cardinals. Joe Torre's great manager. Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson has 11 NBA championships. He was also, as a player, on the all-rookie first team and played 12 seasons in the NBA, won two championships as a player. Like, he wasn't bad. There were guys like Mike Ditka, like, uh, you know, Jerry Sloan wasn't bad, um, you know, Pat Riley, Larry, uh, Bird. Larry, Larry Bird. How about Larry Bird? I mean, come on. And, you know, so there are some examples, but I get it because I do think we're in an era now where star players are making so much money like, why in the world would they want to sign on to be a coach in the end? Like, they've made too much money. They don't need the headaches. And by the way, do you want to manage today's NBA player? I think we will see fewer stars from this era go on to be coaches because what's in it for them? You know, they know how the coach gets treated. Sean's in Sandy. Sean, welcome. Hey, John, I like what you're saying. There's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, I, I see coaches, you know, sometimes they got to put on the bait gloves with these guys and, and if things get rough on them, they, they demand a trade. They don't like the way they're being treated or something. Um, but I'm really glad about what the Blazers are doing right now. You know, we're finally over that Damian Lillard era. You know, that was the loser era. You know, Paul Allen was here for a long time, and it seems like he kind of quit on us about 2005. And then he was kind of running this show like it was a business, and just kind of going through the motions. So, I mean, well, I'll, t- I'll Lillard, tell you, Lil- it was a it was a business for Lillard from go. I mean, let's make no mistake about it. I I I reached out to his agent Aaron Goodwin uh, when he was a rookie, and we had a brief conversation about having Lillard on this show once a week during his rookie season. And the very first thing that was floated out was, uh, you know, how much are we going to pay Damian Lillard to come on the show once a week? And it was a five figure initial conversation and i was like we're not paying to come on the show he wants to come on the show and introduce himself to fans and get to know fans and and then we went to hey just come on once in a while and you know it, it was a turnoff to me it was the first player in blazers history first player in any team's history where i was approached and said um you know yeah he'll come on the show and uh you know he'd like to be paid for it <laughs> you know like not making enough with your nba contract um, yeah, I just I kind of look back at that and I shake my head. I think it was a business from go, and and it is part of what we're talking about the business of sports on today's show. Our next guest coming up, Robert Rayola, is known as the tax man, the sports tax man, on Twitter. He's going to tell us all about the jock tax. What happens when NBA players come to town? They play a game in Portland. They play a game in Sacramento. Who's collecting those taxes? What are the advantages of it? Robert Riola coming up later in the program. Talia Van Olhoffen will be joining us, Oregon State star basketball player. She had a big game winner over the weekend. It's a great Friday uh, night performance last Friday night for Talia. Uh, Oregon State women's basketball is cooking right now. We'll talk to her later in the program. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Well, we've been talking a little bit and a lot about the business of sports. I say a little bit because we start off talking about why you don't feel connected to your NBA team, and we end up by the end of the segment talking about 
how the players treat it as a business. Uh, our next guest is known on Twitter as at Sports Taxman. He's the best. We've had him on before. Robert Rayola is a CPA, director of sports and entertainment uh, at his firm, co-author of a book called Winning Tax Strategies for Athletes and Entertainers. You've uh, read him in Sports Illustrated as well. Robert Rayola joining us. Uh, are you in New Jersey, New York? Where are you today? I am in New Jersey today. What exit? Um, exit 136 on the parkway. Isn't that how you guys do it there? I got friends from Jersey. They always yeah. go, what exit? It, it is, John. That's exactly how they do it. Robert, give us an idea. What, how did you get into this, first of all? How did you become the sports tax man? And what, what fueled that interest? Sure. Um, I, I'm an accountant, and we do people's tax returns and financial planning and tax planning as well. And back, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, uh, somebody dared me to get on Twitter, and I didn't have a handle. I didn't know how to tweet. So I said, okay. And then I said, I think I'm going to name myself Sports Taxman. And that's what happened, and it's led to a lot of things. Matter of fact, today it led to an opportunity with uh, a Denver Broncos player that he found me on Twitter, and we connected, and we're going to work together. It's interesting. So when athletes reach out to you, what are they looking for? What what goal do they have in getting with a CPA and, and trying to get some strategy together? Minimize taxes. And make sure that you can comply with all the laws, but minimize taxes as much as possible. Give us an idea of how athletes do that, because when Damian Lillard was looking to get out of Portland, it was interesting. Miami was where he wanted to go, and a lot of people yep. said, well, maybe there's a reason he wants to go to Florida. Give us an idea of some of those strategies that athletes use and entertainers use to minimize their liability. Sure. Um, what The biggest area they can get in and, and minimize taxes is around state income tax. Like the receiver from the Kansas City Chiefs, oh, he was on the Chiefs Hill. He yeah. was going to go to the Jets until his mother pointed out the state tax rate in New Jersey. So he wound up with the Dolphins. So people, we always do that. And, John, we say the best gross deal may not be the best net deal because of the taxes. And we also discuss other ways of uh, sheltering some of the endorsement income by retirement plans. We also do that. And the, you're making a big mistake if you don't look at the net as opposed to the gross. Robert Rayola, sports tax man, is our guest uh, the Portland Diamond Project wants to bring Major League Baseball to Portland. They've talked about a jock tax. They are proposing that uh, that would generate some revenue for the state of Oregon. Uh, we've heard about jock taxes in other states. Uh, when people throw that out there, Robert, what do they mean by jock tax? They mean the income tax that's uh, hit hits players as they come through the state. Like the basketball players, as they come through to play the Trailblazers, they will pay tax. And the top rate in Oregon is 9.9%, which is pretty steep. The one state that's much higher than that is California, which is now 14.4%. That's right, 14.4%, which is absolutely ridiculous, but that's the rate that they have. So there's several states that enforce these laws, New York, Ohio, Wisconsin, different states. They capture the revenue from these non-resident athletes who are coming through to play games. And you say, why do they bottle these guys? Easier to track, 
make a lot of money, and you get good revenue from it. So that's why all these states are doing this. And so if you're Steph Curry, you're paying that 14% on your home games uh, when you're playing uh, the Warriors. You're, you're, you're paying 9.9% when you play against the Trailblazers. Is he filing like 15 tax returns every year? Very good, John. Yes, he is. He, he would file a bunch of returns. You play here, you pay here. And he, he's probably, I would say he's probably a California resident, even though that stinks. That means he paid California tax on all his income. But it would kind of be hard to not be a California resident for him. But you can be like a, if you play for the San Francisco Giants or the Dodgers. Clayton Kershaw, all these years, when he did his new contract, he got a big signing bonus. The reason why he got signing bonus, it was only taxable in Texas. And mm. Texas has no income tax. So he was able to pull the whole entire signing bonus out of the clause of California and not pay any California tax on the signing bonus. I was going to ask you that because you see so many golfers on the PGA Tour or LIV or whatever who will say, I live in Florida, and then you know they travel around. Does that work the same for golf if you're playing in a tournament in California? Are you paying... California income tax, but your endorsement money, is it is it your state of residence, or how does that work? Yes, on both, John. Um, you are definitely paying California tax if you win or if you get any proceeds from the, uh, the prizes when you're out of the California tournament. And, you know, this, this doesn't only happen to them. It happens to the golfers, tennis players. Um, it could happen to employees of a company. But that's not as high-profile, easy to track. The athletes are easy to track down, and the states are basking in the glory of getting this revenue from these athletes. Yeah, I think you make a great point, Robert, because it's not like they can hide from the schedule. It's right there online. Everybody knows that the Warriors played a game. You know, they know where they played last night. They know where they're playing on Thursday night, you know, Friday night. Uh, Easy to track. Robert Riola is a CPA. He's known as Sports Taxman. Uh, name, image, likeness. NIL has come up. Uh, I, I heard about college kids, Robert, who cut NIL deals and then were shocked yeah, come January when they got 1099 forms for their NIL money. Um, what have you heard in that NIL space? What do athletes need to know about that income? They need to know if you get this income without tax coming out, which is as long as they're uh, independent contractors, no tax will come out. You should be putting, depending on the amount that you're getting, you should be putting about 40% behind um, for for taxes. I work with a kid who uh, plays college basketball, and he he's gotten about 800000 in uh, revenue, NIL money. So we, we knew how much he was getting, so we set aside the tax money so that he would have it come April. If they become employees, then they will have taxes come out of their paycheck. So, uh, and they'll lose the ability to deduct agency. If mm. players are independent contractors, these student athletes, they are allowed to deduct agent fees, which I think is pretty steep. But I think the athletes are in for a big surprise when they get that envelope and figure out what it really means. Robert Rayola with us, uh, CPA, Director of Sports and Entertainment at PKF O'Connell Davies. Um, you know, you're, you have to have a passion for sports. You seem to be interested in it. And you obviously, you, you go to school, you decide you're going to be a CPA. Yeah, was there a light bulb moment for you where you went, you know, I can put these two things together and it doesn't, you know, it feels like less of a job? Or 
Is it just an athlete one day uh, knocked on your door or picked up the phone? Uh, no, definitely not an athlete knocking on my door, picking up the phone. But I did have a big interest in sports. And if I had it to do over again, I probably would have gone to a school like Syracuse to be a sports broadcaster. But maybe I didn't have a voice or face for TV. And I didn't <laughs> go that route. And I became a, a, an accountant. And it's worked out real well. And I was able to, very good, John, put the two things that I like a lot together and be able to help people and make a living at it. Athletes and entertainers, when you deal with them, is one or the other more or less tuned in to kind of, you know, the CPA angle and the tax strategies? Or is it always case by case with an athlete and an entertainer? Case by case, John. In each, you can't make a a general statement for athletes or for entertainers. It's case-by-case situation. Have you found that in more recent times there's more awareness, more people are more, you've been at this a long time, that people are more tuned in than ever, or, you know, is it still kind of hit and miss? Um, the kids that are in college, the students and athletes, that's a definite, they're going to be, like I said, a big surprise when they find out how much they owe. And hopefully they didn't spend the tax money. But, uh, it's definitely hit and miss. Some people, the older they get, the more in tune they want to be. I had a an athlete reach out to me, and he wanted to know all the stuff that's on his, his tax return and how we could save him money. So um, it, it's definitely a hit and miss situation. What mistakes do you see athletes and entertainers making when it as it pertains to just their finances and the business of you know you know basketball player Inc. or football player Inc. Uh, what mistakes do you see made? Um, not a proper planning for the state income taxes. Not d- doing what Clayton Kershaw did for planning purposes. You can get a signing bonus in all sports except football because of the wording in the contracts, and you could not have to pay tax on it. That's huge. And you know 14.4% is very high, and if you could do the planning, uh, it works out to be a big save. And so, another thing that I, I've discovered over the years was Indiana has a uh, local tax. But what they do, and only Indiana can do this, they look at where somebody was a resident of on January 1st. So if you have a kid in the NFL draft who came out to play for the coach, Richardson, he he was a resident of somewhere else on January 1st. So the team took out all the taxes for the year, and he's going to get back a large sum of money, at least $100,000. That's often overlooked. Interesting. Uh, and I also think, like, so are you telling me, let's just say I'm about to get a big signing bonus, uh, that I should be moving to a state that has no income tax, take the bonus, keep a residence there, you know, call it my primary residence? Is that is that what we need to do? Yes, but that means driver's license, registered to vote, all that sort of stuff. But um, it's definitely good planning. And, again, we get back to the the gross in the net. And when you realize you get your paycheck, you got one partner, Uncle Sam, you don't need another partner in the state tax you as well. Robert Rayola with us, at Sports Tax Man on Twitter. All right, private equity. I've been thinking about this. How do you think private equity can change college athletics, or how might it change college athletics? I think it's in your genre, and it's uh, got to be something that's being talked about. Yes. Um, they, I believe they, the private equity firm has just purchased 
a large chunk of the Orioles. Uh, that was recently within the last couple of weeks. Um, it, it could change the way these guys get paid, and who knows, but two years from now, maybe we have them as employees. Not sure of that. But I think people with private equity, a lot of people don't have an idea what private equity is. My son works for a private equity firm, and, you know, he's educated me a little bit on what they do and why they do it. So um, I think that would be another bone for athletes if they could get these guys interested. Robert, I really appreciate your time. I encourage people to follow you at Sports Taxman on Twitter. Uh, love that you did this interview. I think you still could say you're a broadcaster. You're doing interviews. And uh, just <laughs> just appreciate you, man. And, you know, give me an idea from your standpoint. You know, I'm interested in, like, college realignment in the conferences and what's going to happen to Oregon, Oregon State. As a as a CPA who's a sports guy, what are you interested in? Like, what what are you curious to see what happens in the next 6 to 12 months? The way play, p- people get fined, you know, because fines used to be a tax deduction. It's not no longer. Back in 2017, Trump eliminated all unreimbursed employee business expenses, agency, conditioning costs, clubhouse dues, whatever else you have, he, he eliminated those. So you have to do some planning, otherwise you're going to wind up paying more tax than you otherwise would like to. Love it. Robert Rayola, thank you, at Sports Taxman on Twitter. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. You bet. There's Jersey. Jersey's out. Coming up. I love having those guests, by the way. I geek out on that stuff. It's it's just like these little things that, uh, you know, I, I always say this show it has several aims. I would like to entertain you. I would like to inform you. I feel like I want you to leave the show smarter than when you arrived. I know that this show makes you better looking because I've seen you in public. But I, I just think that a guest like that fills in a little bit of a blank. I don't know. I'm a little smarter after talking to Robert Riola. Coming up, our big splash. Leave it here. I think the best college basketball game I've seen all season happened on Friday night. Oregon State, UCLA. Four lead changes. In uh, the final seven seconds of that game, the final quarter of that game was lights out. I don't know if you watched it, Stephen, but it was back and forth, and it was great basketball, and it was UCLA making shots. It was Oregon State making shots. Reagan Beers, the Oregon State center, was out, lost in the second quarter, got hit in the face by a UCLA player, and uh, it was uh, Talia von Olhoffen with a driving layup to take a lead with like four seconds left. And then UCLA comes back, hits a shot, leaves 1.1 on the clock. And then Von Olhoffen on the inbounds play, lights out from the top of the key, three-point shot. I mean, just nothing but net, great execution. It was uh, The excitement was compounded by the fact that in women's college basketball, uh, in the uh, final minutes, you can advance the ball to midcourt. And it was just a wild ending. And uh, a wild ending with uh, Oregon State walking off a winner. And uh, such a great call. on uh, And Schatz had the call on the uh, Pac-12 network. 
And we've got Talia von Olhoffen on today's show at 524. I want you here for it. She is one of the best stories in the state when we talk about at college athletes. And Oregon State women's basketball, top 10 program, lightning in a bottle. No doubt. Scott Ruick's got it going. They're cooking. They've got some games left. And then the conference tournament in Vegas, March 6th through the 10th. This show will be there. We will be on site. We will be broadcasting 3 to 6 while the basketball is going on. We'll have coaches and players joining the show. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be there for the men's tournament as well, live from Vegas. I'm going, you know, we're not just broadcasting because it's going to be really entertaining and exciting. It also is going to keep me off the craps table and off the blackjack table. And, Stephen, uh, wish you were there, man, but you'll be back in the studio. I'll double down. The problem for me is I might not make it off the craps table or the blackjack table. So, like, I can't I can't go. I can't even risk it because I may not just make it to the games. Like, ah, John, I'm on a heater. I can't I can't go to the, you know, the Oregon State-Stanford first-round game. I can't go there. You know, I got to gotta ride this heater out. But, yeah, no, it sounds like a great time. And, and Ve- the thing about Vegas, too, John, is they do it right. You know, like, everything they do down there, they, they do it right down there. They do it right, and they also take your money. Um, Talia Van Olhoffen, in the post-game news conference, did everything that the Trailblazers should be paying attention to when you talk about connecting with your fan base. She talked about the fans inside the arena, how special it was. I thought Oregon State's social media accounts did a nice job of showing the arena, the atmosphere. Um, listen to Talia in the post game here. Walk us through that last uh, play. It looked like you guys were doomed. You get that extra second. Walk us through that last shot by you. Good Lord. Uh, we were trying to get the ball to TG. Lily was our first option on the first one. Um, so I trusted my teammates, but I knew if they helped, I'd be open. Um, and I ran it through my head, you know, if, if they help and I'm open on the pop, just knock it down. And I tried to make plays all night and done that fourth quarter. I'm just so proud of how we stepped up. On the boards, um, with Ray going down, I mean, we competed with a top-10 team without Reagan Beers. Um, so the sky's limit for this team. We are so good. Um, and we never give up, and that's who we are. Um, and I'm just so proud of this team, man. I'm so thankful for, for Beaver Nation um, for showing up tonight and, and for sticking with us the last two years, man. I'm just I'm so happy. She was so happy, and somebody had handed her the giant O from OSU, and she was wearing it around her neck as Ann Schatz was interviewing her there on the postgame. I thought Ann was really good. I texted Ann and said, you were really good in the last couple of minutes of that game. As a broadcaster, she let the moment breathe, but also spoke up when she needed to. Um, Here's the call. Lauren Betts hits a jump shot for UCLA. Great little shot. Seemed to be the game winner with 1.1 seconds to go to give UCLA a lead. UCLA up by a point when uh, Talia von Olhoffen took the ball with 1.1 seconds on the inbound and knocked it down. There she is, Betts, Betts, for the win! Here we go. Now it's Hansford inbounding. Talia for the win! She's got it. She's got it. Long pause. She's got it. Disbelief. Really cool moment. Uh, Brings us to our big splash, because that's not the big splash. That happened on Friday. Uh, The one thing you need to know today. 
is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. We got a little bit of drama in the NFL. Remember when Justin Fields unfollowed the Chicago Bears on Instagram? Well, the Bears quarterback said his decision was nothing more than him needing a break from social media. He cleared the air about not following the Bears and the NFL's account after it was discovered on Monday that the quarterback no longer followed his team on Instagram. He said, quote, why do people take social media so seriously? Here he is in his words. What's with the unfollow with the Bears? What's up with that? Man, bro, I'm glad we're talking about it because people, why do people take social media so serious? Like, <laughs> but like why, why are you not following follow the Bears? This and that. Like, I still mess with the Bears. This and that. I'm just trying to take a little break. I unfollow the Bears and the NFL, bro. I'm not just trying to have football on my timeline. Like, mm. I know y'all mess with a girl, EQ, especially you. Just because you don't follow the girl on IG don't mean you're not messing with them. All right. I, uh, I'm i not going to allow Justin Fields to get away with this. You know, the Bears have the number one pick in the April draft. They face a big decision at quarterback, and Justin Fields is showing his age here. He's 24, just completed his third season in Chicago. He has been the subject of debate for months. Should the Bears stick with him? Should they pick Caleb Williams, the consensus number one pick? And Justin Fields, you know better. You know better than being able to say, oh, I just needed a break from social media. Delete the app from your phone. Have the willpower not to open it. Unfollowing the Chicago Bears and the NFL sends a message, a message that was received by the Bears fan base and the public. Um, the Bears general manager, Ryan Poles, he says, hey, you know, we are uh, considering all options. In the meantime, Justin Fields is hit, feeling the heat. And you just can't do that if you're the quarterback of the Bears. And you cannot compare it to being interested in a girl or a woman and you know, saying, well, I'm unfollowing, but I'm still interested. No, you can't do that. You just know how it's going to be perceived. When Damian Lillard unfollowed the Blazers, it meant something. Well, you know, if Justin Herbert unfollowed the Chargers, it would mean something. Justin Fields, you know better. Doesn't he, Steven? I would think so, right? Like, I mean, and you know, he is younger than I am, and he knows social media probably better than I do. So I would guess that he would know better. Like, he, he should know that people are going to look into who he's following. And if you're not following the team, and it just seems like a real coincidence of a time, like we're talking about Caleb Williams should be the number one pick, and then you all of, all of a sudden unfollow the Chicago Bears. Like, it's kind of a weird situation. I, I, I think he's trying to backtrack it. And he's trying to sound like, you know, he's still all in with the Bears and trying to keep a good, good face. But it seems like he knows that he's probably not going to be with Chicago next season. He was uh, he was bitter about it. He was salty and he unfollowed the team on Instagram. Like it makes a lot of sense of why he would do it. But now the fact that he's going back against it and say, no, 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 it was because I was going on vacation and I didn't want the NFL on my feet. That, it just, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I'd be OK with him just saying, you know, just kind of avoiding the question at all costs. But. He wants to, you know, go on head on, and it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, look, I'm in the end left thinking about the message it sends and Justin Fields' maturity. And if I'm the Chicago Bears, I pay attention to these things. I think it showed at the very least a lack of judgment and maturity on following the team. It's not like, 
you know, let's not say that's the reason why they decide to go in another g- direction, but it goes in his file. You know, it goes in Justin Fields' file along with erratic play, along with some questions about the Bears and, you know, whether or not they've done enough around him. All of this is in his file. And in the end, I kind of think it takes you about three years to know what you got when it comes to a quarterback. I think the Bears are at that point with Justin Fields. And and he's saying he wants to stay there, but he's unfollowing the team. I don't trust that. And I think in the end, if I'm the Bears, I am thinking quarterback at number one. And I'm thinking Caleb Williams. I think he's a better player, and I think you need a change. And and this isn't the reason. I've seen other things from Fields that I just don't like. I just think Caleb Williams is a better player. Now, Caleb Williams doesn't want to go to Chicago. And he's postured that way. I don't know if he has a choice in the end. But um, I I am left kind of looking at the Bears and going, this is why, and I said this off the top of the show, when the Blazers were humming in the Bob Witsit era where Paul Allen was writing blank checks and they had a saying around one center court, spam, they would say. The employees would say spam. Had the highest payroll in the NBA. Spam meant spending Paul Allen's money. That's what it meant. Employees would be like, spam, at spending Paul Allen's money. And in the end, um, you know, if you are the Chicago Bears, you're one of those teams that's perennially in the, you know, in the trouble spot. And it's sad because it used to be a really good team and a really good franchise. But, you know, I watched them play in a Super Bowl or two. But here they are now trying to make a decision at number one with a quarterback who's playing games on Instagram. Coming up, Punch It Audio. Talia von Ohoffen in the 5 o'clock hour. Anna will be along with the 5 at 5 as well. we got a lot to talk about in hour number two, and that is ahead of us. Leave it right here. Get the BFT statewide on the Bald Faced Truth Radio Network. Punch and audio next. We're going to talk about jerseys this hour. LeBron, the J.J. Reddick drama. Draymond Green complaining. Imagine that. And a whole bunch more. All this hour, plus a couple of hot topics... And Anna will be along for the 5 at 5. In the 5 o'clock hour at 5.24, Talia von Olhoffen will be joining us. She's got a better three-point shot than you do. You need to know that. And her team has caught lightning in a bottle. Oregon State ranked number 9 in the latest top 25 poll. They are chasing... The number two seed, trying to be the number two seed in the Pac-12 tournament coming up March 6th through the 10th in Vegas. A little ball to play still. Talia von Olhoffen, 524. Make an appointment. If you know an Oregon State fan who wants to hear from her, uh, tune in. I think you're going to get some authenticity. I think you're going to get an interview that... uh, Let's you get to know her a little bit. Connects you with her. Trailblazers, are you paying attention? Get your players on the show. Get them out there. Let's play some punches, Stephen. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. 
Remember when Carl Malone did a retirement tour? He went around, they gave him a rocking chair. Will LeBron James have a farewell tour? LeBron, will you? Punch it. I have not mapped out how many seasons I have left. Um, I know it's not that many. Um, I also don't know if I will. I was asked this question a couple days ago. Will you kind of take the farewell tour or will you kind of just Tim Duncan it? I'm 50-50. No, he's not. It's LeBron. There's no way LeBron is going to go understated. Let me just slip away. I don't need the limelight. You're not going to recognize me the next time you see me at an all-star game. That's not going to be LeBron. Steven, where are you on the LeBron and whether he'll go quietly into the night? I would uh, I, I would love for someone to take that action. I would love to bet that LeBron uh, takes the farewell tour because I'm with you. There's no chance he just goes away and uh, doesn't get all the attention on him, especially after all he's done in his career. Like, he kind of deserves, like, a farewell tour, right? And then at the same time, like, the way he is as a person and the way he's uh, portrayed himself. Of course, he's going to take that Farrell tour, and uh, I, I don't. I don't think. I think it's okay to admit it. Like it'd be. A, it, we'd all expect it out of LeBron. I just. I'm old enough to remember the decision. You know, like the guy who did the decision is not going to retire without people going. You know, knowing all about it and being able to wave goodbye, give glassy eyes wherever he goes. I don't know why he needs it. But I know LeBron needs that. Moving on. Let's pivot to Draymond Green, who's complaining. He was on Jamal Crawford's podcast. He's upset, saying that uh, people should not be able to tell him what to do on the basketball court unless they played basketball. Punch it. I always tell, like, football players, I'm envious of you. Because they can only really watch and see, man, did such and such run for X amount of yards. Right. Did he throw for this amount of yards? What was his completion? How many passes did he complete? Uh, How many receptions did that guy have? How many yards? But it's so much going on on the football field that people actually shut the fuck up. They're not going to talk and analyze the game of football how they try to do the game of basketball because everybody and their mama think they know the game of basketball. But when it comes to football... Why, though? I don't get it. And so I always tell people, like, why Why do you think you should say that to me? It's interesting because you get one or two reactions. Sometimes you get a reaction like, oh, my fault, bro. Like you, right, you right, 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 right. But sometimes you actually get people that's like, no, nah, no, nah, be- like, because this and that. And I'm like... Yo, do you realize <laughs> I study this? More than anything. Like, daily, all day. You watch a game for two hours. I live this, breathe it, study this. That What makes you think in your right mind you know this the way I do? Do you see the irony here? Draymond Green's coming into my space. I know this. I know broadcasting, Draymond. How dare you? Tell broadcasters how to do their jobs. Didn't you go to school for this, John? <laughs> and and he's so wrong about the NFL, Major League Baseball, whatnot. Give me a break. I, I have been in so many press boxes where I'm watching a 
Defensive back who's playing cover two. And his responsibility is the flat. He's getting his, he fails to get his hands on the receiver. Receiver goes by him. Beats the safety who has deep half for a touchdown. And everybody goes, that guy got burned. It's the same in all sports, Dre. Here's the thing. If you're Draymond Green, you have made in your career a $100 million contract four years. He's making $153,000 a game this season, okay? That's what the money's for, Dre. Don Draper could have told you that in Mad Men. You're making $12.6 million per season, $100 million contract, $150,000 a game. That's what the money's for. You have to endure some fans who are going to tell you how to do your job, media members who are going to tell you how to do your job. The interest you're getting from fans and media is the same thing that's driving your salary. You miss that. If you want everyone to go away and be quiet and not watch and not be interested and not have an opinion on what you're doing on the court, you can go play somewhere for free where that doesn't come with that. that no expectations. You can play on my City League team if you want. I won't tell them what to do. I find it interesting... You know, I know Jamal Crawford. I like Jamal Crawford. We can we we need to get Jamal Crawford back on the show. He's come on multiple times. One of the nicest guys, and a guy who understood kind of the bridge from playing to going to be a media member. And what I'm hearing in that interview, I don't know if you heard it. Were you listening to Jamal or just Draymond during that? I was listening to both of them. Okay, Jamal's egging him on. Okay, Jamal's doing what any. Good media member's going to do when Draymond Green's about to put his sneaker in his mouth. He's saying, yeah, why? But why? <laughs> you know, like, come on, Dre, go on. Keep going. Isn't this, Draymond, just, yeah. isn't this just like the perfect example of why fans get turned off by the NBA, though, as well? Yes. Like, Draymond just basically said, if you didn't play at the highest level, I'm not going to listen to you. So what about any coach on the coaching staff that never played? What about a GM? When Bob Myers was their GM, did he not listen to him too? He didn't play in the NBA. Now, I know Steve Kerr did, but he wasn't a Hall of Fame player. Like He's basically saying, I'm not going to listen to anybody, and I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. Now, it's worked for Draymond. He's going to be a Hall of Fame player, and he's won numerous championships, but it also is what turns off a lot of people to the NBA. Like I worked for the Blazers, so does my opinion count to Draymond? No, not at all. But like I know what I'm talking about. I know what they're looking for. I, they've taught me how to do things, so... It's just it's just it's a weird thing to say, like, I'm not going to listen to anybody, but now I'm going to have my own podcast and tell everybody what to think. Like, right. it's, it's just, it's just talking I, I about think it's even things. worse. Yeah. I think it's even more sinister than that, because it's not even that he's saying, I'm not going to listen to you. He's saying you shouldn't have an opinion. You shouldn't be able to tell me what you think of my game. You what? We're all supposed to just be quiet and politely watch, cheer like it's a golf He's match. made almost $300 million, but I'm not allowed to want him to shoot a better three-point percentage. But I think it's lost on some players that the same enthusiasm, albeit sometimes misguided, let's be real, sometimes fans are wrong, sometimes media members are wrong, but that same enthusiasm and passion and interest in what he's doing on the court is what is driving his livelihood. And I find it funny that 
he's doing a podcast. He's doing what I do. He's doing a broadcast. And he's saying nobody else who's doing a broadcast should have an opinion on what he's doing. Go away. Just go away. I don't care if you listen to me. I don't need you to listen to me. I, I doubt Draymond Green has ever heard anything I've said about him. But what I would love is for Draymond Green to recognize, like, you know, you can't be complaining about people talking about you while benefiting from people talking about you. It's the game he plays. It's half his game. J.J. Redick has been involved in a back and forth about Doc Rivers. It's heating up. Now, J.J. Redick is wondering if fans really want to be educated or not. There's a lot to this now. It's a whole nother back and forth. Here's J.J. Punch it. Since when is it players' jobs to educate people on basketball? When did that become a thing? When did that become a thing? Isn't that our job? Isn't that our job? I'll answer. I'll I do answer that as my I'm, job. I'm, I'm, That's I'm, my job I'm, to educate I'm, people I'm on letting, basketball. I'm letting you speak, no, and then I, I'm, I'll I'm, answer. I, I'm, it's our job, Stephen A., to educate mm-hmm. people on basketball. It's okay. our job. And here's the reality. This is the okay. ecosystem we live in. I can do a okay. video on my podcast. I can do a video on my podcast where I break down the last nine games the Pelicans have used Zion Williamson as the primary ball handler and what type of actions that has led to. I looked it up this morning. 54,000 views on YouTube. But I want to call out a coach yesterday. Oh, that gets tens of millions of engagements. That's the ecosystem we live in. So do fans actually want to be educated or not? Mm-hmm. Do they? Do fans want to be educated or not? I mean, again, I, there's a little bit of arrogance from the former player, J.J. Redick, and the broadcaster, J.J. Redick. But I think he's on to something. You know, like what fans like and tune into is to hear Stephen A. arguing with J.J. Redick. I don't think they're there necessarily to hear intelligent discourse and be educated and i i said in hour one that there are multiple aims of this show and some of it is making you smarter bringing on a guest who can talk about athletes and taxes and the jock tax but some of it is entertainment too i mean let's let's be real let's be honest about it doug gottlieb responding to jj's uh reddick's comments do fans want to be educated or not Doug Gottlieb, punch it. The the hot take movement in sports, much like the debate uh, movement in uh, in news television, okay? all that is is like junk food, and just like junk food or the American diet, we as Americans are hooked on it. And educated film watching breakdowns, man. That is a healthy, healthy amount of veggies. That's a salad. That's keto. And the truth is that your diet should be like your sports intake. Everything in moderation. Yeah, I don't know about moderation. I think, though, you need some balance. I'm well aware that sometimes on this show it gets silly, it gets entertaining, it gets fun. We're not talking about sports at times. And I'm well aware that that if we did that for three hours, people would be like, hey, man, I need more sports in the, in the show. I also know that if I put too much sports in the show, it's just not as fun, not as entertaining for you, and frankly, not as fun for me. Part of that, the reason why we talk about ridiculous things sometimes is, you know, I need a break from it. 
So I think Gottlieb's he's hunting in the right area. I don't think it's moderation, though. I think it's more just uh, having a healthy balance and knowing, you know, that, hey, you can entertain while educating to a certain extent. But I agree that, you know, we're in the, the hot take philosophy or the hot take uh, junk food that he's talking about has dominated, especially sports media television shows. Do you think Do you think TV, like ESPN and Fox, needs to have more breakdowns, like J.J. Reddick's talking about, how he could break down a Zion Williamson? Do they need to have that more often than what they have on there now, or is it okay what uh, they're doing because they're getting ratings, they're getting clicks? I did an FS1 show a few years ago, TV show, where they flew me into L.A., flew me to the Fox studios, and it was Andy Roddick and Gabe Kapler that were on the set, and... Um, they had a host, and the thing that surprised me is that we had a big meeting like two hours before the actual show. I was not used to this. I had what my thoughts on what the topics were going to be. I knew what they were. They'd give me a card where here's four or five things we're going to talk about on the show, and you know uh, everybody else had the same card. And I thought I actually thought we were going to go on air and we were going to have a, a discussion, and I didn't know what Gabe Kapler and. And Andy Roddick, we're going to say. I had no idea. And until we went into the production meeting and the producer said, Gabe, what are you going to say? I mean, can you believe that? I can't. No, because uh, that is complete opposite of what we do on this show. It's exactly the opposite. Like, <laughs> I don't know. You don't know what I'm going to say. If I call you with a take, you're going to, like, hang up on me and say, don't tell me. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, you don't want to talk about it. Like, I, I get it. And that's what I think gives the spontaneity of the show. But at the same time, you got to be careful because some of the I think some of these athletes, for lack of a better term, they they mail it in, right? Because they are so talented, they are so good, they can just talk and it sounds really good. But they aren't necessarily watching or they're not necessarily breaking things down. Or like JJ Reddick does, but I think a lot of these guys, a lot of these analysts, don't do that. Kapler was super serious. He was like studying in a room by himself. Andy Roddick was very friendly and personable. Really nice guy. Uh, Frank Thomas, the big hurt, was sitting in the green room, talked to him for a while. It was awesome to be you know, around these guys. But the thing that blew me away was the production meeting. It was, Gabe, what are you going to say? Then, Andy, what are you going to say? All right, John, what are you going to say? And I was like, we're, like, scripting the argument? And I guarantee you, all these shows we're watching, there's a production meeting in which they're going, all right, JJ, you and Steven are going to disagree. And I, and I will tell you this, I don't think they necessarily just fabricate outrage, but I think that if the producers don't think there's a conflict, they, they say, I forget the topic. They're looking for conflict. They want people arguing, disagreeing. It's good TV. Simple as that. CBS college football writer Chip Patterson talking about the new CFP format. Pack 12 got a little bit of benefit. Five plus seven, model seven at large teams punching. When you approved the six plus six format, the Pac 12 still existed. The Pac 12 still had teams like Utah, Oregon, Washington, USC that would be in contention for a 12 team playoff format. Well, now those teams, they're in the Big 10, they're in the Big 12. You even got Stanford and Cal in the ACC. So when we're thinking about the future uh, of the playoff, we need to take the spot that we figured the Pac 12 would be in contention for, that sixth spot, and we need 
to give it to make it available to where those teams are now. Because when you're USC, when you are Washington, Oregon, when you are Utah, or maybe even Arizona, you're now going to be competing for potentially an at-large bid. So with the Pac-12 going away, we take that one automatic qualifier for a conference champion and we turn it into an at-large bid because we thought it was going to be for the Pac-12. So now let's make it available for where those Pac-12 schools are, which are in other conferences. They're the first, the top four seeds will get a buy. Seeds one through four. The next seeds five through 12 will play in the first round. Five automatic qualifiers. The controversy will be who's the top four. They're going to want buys. Pack two sitting pretty right now because I think they'll have an inherent advantage among the group of five teams, at least for next season. Maybe two seasons because they look better, better funding, better stadiums. Jake Dickert at Washington State. Trent Bray at Oregon State, if he can get it together quickly. Feels like Oregon State and Washington State could have a shot to participate, along with Oregon and who, you know, USC going to the Big Ten. They'll have a chance too. But the latest has been that uh, one of the Power Four pro, uh, conferences wants four automatic bids is it the big 10 or the sec or is it both they're pigs we know they're pigs they're not going to leave the trough with one automatic qualifier now it seems to me that if you have confidence in your league and you're tony Petiti, the big 10 conference commissioner or you're greg sankey the sec commissioner if you have confidence in your league why wouldn't you be at peace knowing that you're going to get three or four bids in a normal year. Bob Thompson, the former president of Fox Sports Networks, says he believes that the CFP is going to get to 16 teams pretty quickly because the payouts in that first four round of the college football playoff is going to be 3 to $4 million. Seeds one through four having a buy, they get nothing. The other team's going to get 3 to $4 million. They get an on-campus game. They get all the money that goes along with it. It feels to me, it feels like there's a lot of people, a lot of noise out there for 12 to move to 16 pretty quickly. Keep an eye on that as the playoff unfolds. Jay Billis talking about how NIL and the transfer portal has affected college basketball. Punch it. Why should a player be relegated to a certain level based upon where he was projected out of high school? Uh, so that's that's helped. And you've seen major conference players that didn't play as much go down to the mid-major level and they're doing really well. Um, so it, it's I think it's been overall a good thing for the players. Coaches don't like it because they they claim, you know, you, you always hear the thing about, well, there's no loyalty anymore. And it's transactional as if it wasn't transactional before. And how do you build relationships? You know, you, you think all these guys should go coach in high school if they want relationships. Um, it's business and the players are participating in the business now. And, uh, and I think it's worked out just fine. Look, uh, it's worked out fine for the haves and Billis tends to focus on the haves. I'm the jury's still out on whether or not NIL is going to be as big a problem in basketball or maybe a bigger problem than it is in foot college football, major college football. It's, um, it's a system that should have been rolled out very slowly and deliberately. And instead, the NCAA went to court, 
lost and floodgates opened and you know it's been like correction after correction and it's been a mess it it hasn't been unveiled in quite the right way it probably should have started earlier sooner with more guidance more guide rails more transparency it turned into the wild west pretty quickly i i'm hoping it'll get back on the rails but others are saying let's just go to paying players finally mike florio talking about russell wilson he expects him to be cut from the Denver Broncos. Punch it. It comes down to this. They owe him $39 million this year, no matter what. If he's on the roster March 17, they owe him another $37 million fully guaranteed next year. He will not be on the roster on March 17. His house, his 20,000-square-foot, $25 million mansion is up for sale in Denver. He's moving on. And the real question to me is, will he take a one-year bare minimum deal for some from someone else, make it easier for that team to put a roster around him and stick the Broncos with the balance. I that when all this stuff went down late in the season, that was the sense I got. We'll see how it plays out once he's cut, but I think he's going to be cut and I think he's going to be available to anybody who wants him. Where does Russell Wilson end up? And you know, what team ends up in a dire situation where they need a veteran quarterback who's got some moxie to him? But he's not what he used to be. The betting favorite to end up with Russell Wilson. Where do you go with him? Steelers? Somewhere like that? Pittsburgh? I think Pittsburgh. I would say Pittsburgh, right? Like Their defense is always good, and Tomlin just needs some guy that's not going to make mistakes. They've got Kenny Pickett and Mason Rudolph. Would you go Russell Wilson, or do you, if you're Pittsburgh, do you draft somebody like Bo Nix? Take your chances. That's a that's a really good question. I think for me, I would rather go with Russell Wilson for a year. I think you can find guys like Bo Nix uh, in basically any draft. Like the same with the Brock Purdy. Like they may fall, but I think you can find solid guys that have been in college for a long time. So I would go with Russell. I don't think I would you know have to want to pay up to get a guy like Bo Nix. I I I kind of would go young with bigger upside. Go with Bo Nix, but you know, R- Mike Tomlin might not be up for that. Leave it here. Anna's popping into the studio 5 at 5 top of the hour. Anna, you know who's on the show at 524? Uh, I do not. Talia von <gasps> Olhofen awesome. on the show. That's great. You know why she's on the show? Uh, well, she's amazing. How about that? She had a good game on Friday. Yeah. She was very emotional after mm-hmm. hitting the game-winning shot against UCLA. Walk us through that last uh, play. It, it looked like you guys were doomed. You get that extra second. Walk us through that last shot by you. Good Lord. Uh, we were trying to get the ball to TG. Lily was our first option on the first one. Um, so I trusted my teammates, but I knew if they helped, I'd be open. Um, and I ran it through my head, you know, if, if they help and I'm open on the pop, just knock it down. And I tried to make plays all night. And on that fourth quarter, I'm just so proud of how we stepped up. On the boards, um, with Ray going down, I mean, we competed with a top-10 team without Reagan Beers. Um, so this guy's limit for this team. We are so good. Um, and we never give up, and that's who we are. Um, and I'm just so proud of this team, man. I'm so thankful for, for Beaver Nation um, for showing up tonight and, and for sticking with us the last two years, man. I'm just I'm so happy. They lost last season like seven games by um, like two point, four points or less. Mm-hmm. They lost a bunch of close games. They were fairly young. 
You were there. You saw them at the Maui Invitational. They were just a little in over their heads against <laughs> top competition. Yeah. But Talia was the best player last season. She comes into this season, and a lot of the attention has gone to Reagan Beers, mm-hmm. the center, two-time Pac-12 uh, Player of the Week. They're uh, uh, you got she's got a good young guard on the team, local kid. Um, so she's not the focal point some nights. And it was interesting because when Reagan Beers goes down in the second quarter, Talia had no problem stepping up because it's what she did all last season. Mm -hmm. It's the role she played. Yeah. She carried them. Yeah. And so I thought it was a really interesting moment. People would be like, oh, she had a huge game. She carried, she took all the big shots. She was in that situation a year ago. And so it was, it was almost like the muscle memory was still there. I think it's cool that in a heightened moment like that, that she's just kind of hitting all the bases, which strikes me as incredibly authentic. You know, like, when you see an athlete that is in an extreme moment, either in despair or they've had a big win, you like you wonder what comes out of their mouth. And often what comes out of their mouth is closest to who they really are and what they're about. So you're talking about in that moment where she's trying to uh, put in words for Ann Schatz yeah. about what the game was like, that she's hitting on all the notes. What do you mean by that when, when you say she's hitting on all the notes? I mean, she's thanking the fans. She's being a leader. She's defining who they are as a team. We don't give up. She didn't really spend a lot of time talking about herself. She talked about their dynamic as a team and their identity. And so, I, and I don't know if that's more her. I don't know if it's Scott Ruick and, you know, what he's preaching. But um, that's just, that's a really solid foundation for especially someone her age. I think there is some Scott Ruick magic going on in the background of that. I think there is definitely some Scott Ruick magic where he's he's trying to get her um, in this situation where she doesn't view herself as the focal point. They talk their whole slogan as a team is we are family. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think there's. I think there is some intentionality about that. And you see coaches who will do that. Coaches who will come out and say, it's not about you, even though he knows, like, she knows what a great player she is. He could make her the focal point. But he, I think he calls upon his team to kind of be selfless in that way. And it's part of their identity. Yeah, and the fact that it just rolls off of her lips so easily is, is what I'm saying is, you know, when you see a program where and she's not the only player i think on that team that i've heard say these kind of things i've i heard your interview with reagan beers too that they he has done apparently a good job of helping the team figure out who they are and that like for any entity that wants success that is key here she is in the post-game news conference so you heard her there talking to ann shots right on the uh media row after the game Bands playing in the background. She's just hit the game-winning shot. Now she's had a chance to go back into the locker room. She's cooled off for a couple minutes. She comes out to the news conference. Um, and just being surrounded by the most amazing people. And um, I told Scott after the game, just just thank you for never giving up on me. And um, I got to points in my career where, you know, I didn't know if this was what I wanted or if I was built for this. Um, and I just stayed with it, and 
not that we've done anything yet, but this was just super rewarding to look up and, and see people behind the rafters. Um, that's what I came here to do, and I didn't think it would look like this or take this long, but um, I wouldn't trade the journey for anything. Seeing Gilf. You wouldn't trade it for anything. She hit on the points there as well. Yep. And, like, I don't know, you know, I'd love to know in your next interview with him, like, how much is he reinforcing the idea that they need to be grateful for their fans? Because that seems to be something that she keeps coming back to. And I would love to know from him, is that a point that he's stressing to the players, or is this just coming from the players and their own gratitude? I'm going to ask her that. I mean, oh, yeah, would, wouldn't she know? Like, wouldn't <laughs> yeah, she know that? Yeah. Coming oh, up yeah, at that. 524. Well, and how about when she said, you know, thanks to the fans for sticking with us for the last two years, because they were 13 and 18 and 17 and 14. She was a part of both those teams. She didn't want to leave. She didn't leave the transfer portal. Like, that. I think that's one of the things you say about Scott Rook is, you know, he kept the culture together. He kept that team together. And now look what it's done. It's turned out to be a really good season in a couple of years. But we're not going to see that a lot of times in college, college sports anymore just because how the how the world works. And I, I think, you know, I said this on Friday night, and I and I put it on Instagram. I said, you know, should we get her on the show? Get her on the show. And I today was like, you know, we need to have her on the show. We probably should have had her on yesterday. And we're going to get her on the show. A lot to talk with her about. Do you know her story? That Mm-mm. her dad is a former NFL defensive tackle. Oh, okay. Played for several teams in the NFL. Um, And... Her, you know, her parents are incredibly proud of her, but this is a kid that could have went anywhere. And Stephen's right. You know, she could have, you know, gone somewhere else. But, you know, her mother was a four-year starter in college basketball at the University of Hawaii. Hmm. And dad played in the NFL. And I think it was really important. You know, Oregon State plays in that Maui Invitational. Mm-hmm. I think that tournament was important to her in a way. Why? To, to because she's playing where her mom played, mm. and there's a connection there. Even though she's a kid who, you know, grew up in the state of Washington, her dad played. Her dad Kimo played for the Bengals, the Steelers, the Jets, and the Eagles, and he was raised in Molokai, hmm. and um, and played at the University of Hawaii, and then Boise State, and then went into the NFL, and then mom played at University of Hawaii. So I just think there was, um, I think there that Maui Invitational, you know, and and that in part. You know, I was talking to Scott Ruick with this about this over the weekend. We ended up on the phone, and and he said, you know, we do a lot of things that are a lot of work. They do that. They they dreamed up that Maui tournament, like they made that tournament, mm-hmm. and they didn't have to do that. That yeah. takes extra work. Like they could just play a tournament at Gill Coliseum. Right. But it's a little it's a little something special. Mm-hmm. They get to go to Hawaii. LSU played in that tournament last year. You know, and went on to win a national championship. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's a fun event. So it'll be fun to talk to her coming up uh, at 524 if you want to hear it. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth. Anna's preparing for the 5 at 5. She's got some good stuff. I'm not going to spoil it. She's got about seven that she needs to wade through and get down to her best five. I'm excited to see what ends up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Um... That is, uh, that's cool. I'm mad at, I'm kind of mad at Lego right now. <laughs> Can I get that off my chest? Wow. Okay. Yeah. What's going on there? All right. I need to get this off my chest. All right. So <laughs> the doctor is the, in. I'm not a Lego kid. I didn't really grow up with them. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if my parents just weren't aware <laughs> or what. I did some Lincoln logs. 
I did some Tinker Toys. And our, our kids, probably to the benefit of my parents financially, because our kids are into Lego. Yeah. And they're Don't not they're not cheap. No. Okay? They're expensive, these sets that they put together. And so for Christmas, the nine-year-old got a Lego set. It's some kind of flower shop. <laughs> Am I right there? I think so. It's a flower shop of some sort. I vaguely um, recall. But she's the kind of person, like, she's nine, and she doesn't need assistance building these things. Yeah. She just kind of goes into the other room. And then she reemerges like an hour and a half, two hours later, and it's done. Mm-hmm. She can figure this stuff out herself. Yes. And this was a rarity in that this Lego set that cost like a hundred and something dollars. Again, it was, it was, yeah, it was not cheap. And she comes in and she's she's a hit a she's hit a wall because bag three of this flower shop set is missing pieces and. So I, I I wasn't mad then. Mm-hmm. I, I I thought eh, mistakes happen. So I reach I go to the Lego website. I reach out to Lego and they have actually a process on their website. They say if you have a set, put in the set. I did. Tell us what's missing. I indicated the parts that were missing. It was like two pieces. I sent it off. Ten to twelve days later, Lego uh, responds with a uh, package. With the missing pieces and an apology. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Like, that's how it should go. Yeah, that's where the story should end. Should have ended right there with me belly aching about these two pieces I had to go get on Lego.com or whatever. Um, but it didn't because subsequently, minutes later, after she put those two pieces in, she said, Dad, there's other pieces missing from this bag. And so then we started to kind of form a picture of what had happened to bag three on this flower shop set. <laughs> um, it Whoever was putting this bag together misfired. Quality control. And badly. Like, was... we were like, this piece isn't there, this piece isn't there, this piece. And it ended up being like the whole bag was wrong. Yeah. Like, it was like seven or ten pieces missing. So I subsequently wrote a second letter to Lego, dealing with a whole new person now. First world problems, but uh, <laughs> missing these other parts. And Lego said, uh, I, th- I said, I think the bag's wrong. It's the bag. It's the whole bag. Mm-hmm. Bag one and two are right. Bag three's wrong. <laughs> and I'm not a Lego kid. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm unaware. I got friends who were into Legos. Yeah. I got a friend who was recently invited onto that Lego show. What's it called? <laughs> Lego Masters. <laughs> Lego Masters. So I uh, should have reached out to him. Made this his problem. Well, he recently found out yeah. that he was invited. Yes. Yeah. So I um, I uh, reached back out to Lego and I said, you know, we maybe you just send the whole bag, bag three. Okay. We're happy to send you what we got here, this yeah. smattering of parts, <laughs> and you send back the proper bag three. <laughs> and they said, well, that set is discontinued, yeah. but we can send you a bag three. Okay. Okay. Set being discontinued should have been a huge red flag, I found out later. Uh-huh. So they sent what they what should be bag three. This has now taken five weeks. Yeah, to get this whole thing. Mm-hmm. The nine year old opens it and she's immediately frustrated and she's like, "Dad, these are wrong. These are the wrong parts." It's like Lego doesn't know what's in bag three of this flower shop set. It's very strange. Very strange. Uh, our Lego master friend says that there probably was a problem with all bag threes, and it's probably why they discontinued the set. Because mm. he says the sets stay 
out there for like three years, three mm-hmm. or four years that there should be available. And this was a fairly new set that was immediately discontinued. Mm. So uh, make a long story short, Lego then subsequently said, send us a receipt of your purchase, which I did. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, they're just going to refund it. No harm, no foul. We're all done. Right. That would if they ended there, that would have been. Uh, the end of it. Correct? Yeah, yeah, that that would have been uh, great. And by the way, thank you for being the one in our family yeah. to take this on because I had no interest in uh, advocating I'm, against Lego here. I'm good at these things. I know you are uh, better than me. And uh, I I look back at my correspondence. I got her kids' age wrong when I was writing to them. <laughs> <laughs> She's nine. I said my 12 year old is very frustrated. I must have been tired when I was writing it. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Um. So, subsequently, Lego then said, we can't replace the set. Obviously, it's discontinued. If you can box up all the parts, put them in Ziploc bags, and ship them to us in uh, Denmark or wherever they are, <laughs> um, we will give you a uh, electronic credit. That and is so dumb. It is dumb. And I, we, have, we showed them the receipt. I know. Why do they want it back? They wanted it back. Because they're, they're going to resell the parts. You know, they, they don't need the money. They're not just into letting them lay around in our living room floor. They want them back. <laughs> so, so, uh, so here's how it goes. Um, I go to the nine year old who might be twelve. Yeah, and I say to her, "What do you want to do?" Right. At this point, giving her a voice, she's over it. I know, and she's a huge Lego fan. Yeah, would have been a customer for I, life. Yeah, and she says, "I'm not interested in bagging this up." I'm just done. Mm. Not going to do it. Done. Wow. They she lost did her. They lost her. And so I said, I replied to them and I said, you lost her. She's out. Never mind. They never responded. End of story. Now, several days later, she said, I, maybe I, maybe we should do this, dad. <laughs> oh, so I'm now, I think it's going to be kind of fun to hunt down these missing parts. And, you know, there's lots of websites out there that do this stuff. You know, I'm kind of geeking out on kind of the uh, the uh, investigative part of this. Uh-huh. I need to hunt down. And I don't call the parts, you know, like when they have, what do they call the little bricks? Bri- yeah, the bricks. The bricks. But like if a brick has six on it. Yeah. I call it a six banger. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. I say to the kid, you need a blue six banger. And she knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know? I have adopted the vernacular. <laughs> so I, know. I don't know if the Lego world is going to be ready for me. Yeah. But I'm going to be like, I need a flat four banger, color blue. <laughs> is that the issue? There's some communication gap there because you need to say it's a four by one or a four by two. Is that how they say and it? They don't know if it's a, what a four banger is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you call it in your household. But... Is this the part where, as your wife, I remind you that at the outset, when we started to discover that pieces were missing, my suggestion was that we go to one of those Lego places yeah. nearby and sort through the mountains of I don't want to do that. Legos and search for the pieces that we no, need. No, I don't want to do that. I just want to go online and say to somebody, I need, you know, an orange six banger <laughs> times four. There's got to be like Lego nerd forums. We're going to build that flower shop. We're going to crowdsource these missing pieces. Build it, Ray, and they will come. <laughs> we're going to build that flower shop. I'm telling you right now. I'm I'm excited about this. I'm we this can't, was, we can't be the only people that have ever dealt with this. Like I feel like, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I asked my Lego master friend last night. Yeah. I asked him. I said, you know, has this happened? And 
He says it happens, and he explained how the bags work. He even explained the loss prevention strategy of Lego. That, yeah. Do you know the, the little uh, figures? Yeah, the, mini, the mini figs? The mini figs? Mini fig bangers? I guess. <laughs> Be careful. Um, you know, the fig, the figures get put in certain bags. They don't put the figures in the same bags. Uh-huh. They'll alternate where they put them in the, within the set. Uh-huh. They don't put all the figures in one bag uh-huh. because what happens is oh. people would go to the store, open the package, yeah. take the bag out that had all the figures in mm-hmm. it, and go resell it on the black mm. market known as eBay. <laughs> so <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. So they uh, there's a whole. Th- I mean, those are expensive. Yeah. I know. Yeah. The other day I ordered uh, a couple of pugs and a goat. On eBay because the nine-year-old who might be twelve Lego 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 things, yeah. things. okay because the nine-year-old who might be twelve said she needed some animals <laughs> for this flower shop. <laughs> Why don't you just hit up the friend and have him back channel this issue? He like, offered. I just don't feel like I should bother him. Mm. You know? Yeah, you don't want to be that guy. I, I did kind of dump it on him last night, though. I was kind of explaining the story to him. And then once you, it's just like anything. If someone came to me and said, I'm having a problem with my tickets on StubHub. Yeah. Or I'm having a problem with my season ticket package with Oregon or Oregon State. There would be part of me, because it's in my genre of knowledge, that I would feel like I need to take ownership of this for my friend and help him out. It's like the doctor who, you know, people ask at parties, like, for free medical advice. Yes. The attorney. That is consulted for free legal advice. I, we've done that to our primary care physician. Oh, he yeah. moved away. Yeah. He's a legacy doctor. Yeah. Moved to Mississippi. Yeah. And we still bug him. We still call him. Yeah. Hey, Text him. Having an issue here with a... Someone. Here are the symptoms. <laughs> he loves us. Can you diagnose yeah. this from your porch? Because once you have a doctor <laughs> that becomes your friend, there's no end to that. <laughs> He's, he's wearing his bow tie, he's sipping a sweet tea, sitting on his porch in a rocking chair in Mississippi. He thought he got away from us, but no, here Living we are. Living a good life. In the middle of the night. Hey, uh, a, hey Doc. S- sounds like a cough, but it also has congestion more in the chest area. Well, I trust him more than Dr. Google. Or WebMD, because oh, that has steered us way wrong. Every before. time I Google my symptoms, I'm having a stroke. Right. Doesn't matter. Or a brain tumor. It doesn't matter know? what you got. All right. So coming up, the five at five. Let's see what Anna is going to leave on the cutting room floor. It's not going to be Legos, I'll tell you that. And then it'll be Talia von Olhoffen. She was fantastic last Friday, carrying Oregon State to a victory. Um, they've got a lot in front of them. They want to be a one seed, a two seed position themselves for the conference tournament championship. They'll have to get by Stanford to do it. We'll talk to her at 524. Here's the other thing I'm wondering about when it as it pertains to Legos. Oh, okay. What Staying do we with it. What do we do? What do we do when these kids go off to college with all these Legos? <laughs> we donate them. There's a lot of money in those bricks. Or those six bangers, as I call them. Do you want to reassemble them package by package and then resell them as uh, sets? I'm just kind of wondering if... You can spend your time doing that. I won't. Maybe some retired folks out there can help me out. Like, I'm kind of thinking what happens is we end up surrounded by Legos. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're in a Lego village we're watching a, television. We're in a Lego house. There you go. All right, this hour, Talia von Olhoffen, star basketball player, Oregon State, will be joining us. 524. Make an appointment. Not 522. Not 525. You might miss something. 524. Be ready for it. And it's going to do the 5 at 5. Steven, are you a Lego guy? No, I'm not a Lego guy. I'm not creative like that. Like, I can't I can't picture things. My kids, they get Legos, and then they tell me to make it, and then I just I get so frustrated. Can't picture them. Like, you can't see it. No. Can't envision it. I am not a master I'm, builder. I'm just surprised you asked Steven at I all. Know. I know. Steven, I are you it. a movie guy? No. <laughs> no. Concerts? Nope. Cereal? Oh, I'm a cereal guy. Oh, he's a cereal guy. Mm, all about it. What's like your favorite a, cereal? Like a kid at heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite cereal? Probably like Frosted Mini Wheats, like the strawberry flavor. Very specific. What? Very specific. They make a strawberry flavored Frosted <laughs> Mini Wheats? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Get on not it. been in the cereal oh, aisle? Sheesh. Well, yeah. I'm overwhelmed by how many iterations of my childhood cereals are now available. I, I am that person standing in the aisle, paralyzed, because there's just too many choices. Well, they get you. Yeah. They got the kids mesmerized. Just give me the original Frosted Mini Wheats. I don't need no fancy strawberry flavoring. On the note, on that note, the five at five. The five at five. Number one. Oh, you're so on it there. Charlie Woods, the son of Tiger Woods, will compete in a pre-qualifier event as he tries to secure a place in the PGA Tour's Cognizant Classic. Mm. What a cool name. Uh, he's 15. He'll play tomorrow in Florida. It's one of four pre-qualifying events. And uh, he'll be in the field against Roy McElroy, Matt Fitzpatrick, Justin Rose, Gary Woodland. What do you think about this? I, the first thing that came to my mind was, was, would it be easy to be Charlie Woods, son of Tiger Woods? Because in some respects, being Tiger's kid comes with some advantages. Sure. Endorsement advantages, doors opening, being able to play in a tournament like this, dad in, dad being a hell of a coach and influence <laughs> on you, having all of his swing coach and caddy available to you. There would be some advantages in this country club world of golf that Charlie Woods would enjoy that other golfers and other kids don't have. Of course. But it comes with pressure. And so then I started thinking, would it be easier to be LeBron James' kid, Bronny, or Charlie Woods? Which which of those is the easier road to where you want to get? Frank Sinatra Jr. question. Yeah, I mean, I think basketball is just a different sport. It's, you know, golf, you are the focal point. And if you suck that day, it's just on you. Um, at least with basketball, it's a team sport. So if your team's not doing well, the blame is dispersed among your teammates, I yeah, guess. But that's the sport. And I, I I, think it would be harder to be brawny. Isn't it just based on who the dad is? That too. That too. <laughs> who, who, has the, who has the tougher childhood? Brawny, for sure. I mean, have you seen LeBron? LeBron said Bronny's ready to play in the NBA. The guy can't even yeah. start in the Pac-12. But isn't that what isn't that what Tiger is essentially saying here about his son? He's ready to play in the PGA at fifteen. Yeah, but I think I think Tiger's put less pressure on him. You know, 
He's talked about him. Oh, Charlie and I were just playing a round of golf. We're doing this. He's, got, he's bringing him along slower than he's ready to play in the NBA. And if and if Charlie can't play, I mean, it's it's just Charlie and his score out there on the course. If he's not ready, you're going to know pretty quickly that he's not ready. But I also like that they named him Charlie. There's, there's just a I don't know why but Tiger versus Charlie. It's you know, Tiger Woods, and <laughs> then he's Charlie's anymore. Tiger Wood <laughs> names his kid Charlie. Chuck? You know, and I keep thinking of Wonka, like you know Charlie, Charlie, my boy. You know, I just any minute now, out of the woods on the first fairway is Willy Wonka's going to come running out, and put his arm around Charlie. Charlie will go by Chuck when he you've turns won, 30. you've won, my boy. <laughs> Number two. Mm, all right, let's talk about Caleb Williams preparing for the draft without an agent <laughs> and as the likely number one pick. Uh, he does not currently employ an agent, apparently intends to continue representing himself going into the pros. Okay. Um, I, I'm curious about this because like, I guess the comparison would be Lamar Jackson. Yeah, I did not have an agent. Who in the last offseason negotiated a record five-year, two hundred sixty million dollar extension with his mom, Felicia Jones? Um, do you think that Williams should go this alone, or do you think it would be wiser for him to have representation in this process? Um, it 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 can this can be a nasty game, this pre-draft stuff, and the agents play dirty. So here's what I think is going to happen. Okay. Forget whether or not it's a smart idea for Caleb Williams to be actually negotiating a contract for himself, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not really about that for me. Okay. The dirty part comes with all the noise we're going to hear between now and the draft and how the agents are planting all this stuff with the media members nationally. I think you're going to hear some ugly things about Caleb Williams. Mm. I think you're going to hear, um, you know, certain teams not being interested in him, questioning his arm strength, questioning his intelligence, questioning his size. Que this is all going to be agents who are representing other quarterbacks in the draft mm. going, we don't like that somebody is trying to do it themselves. Okay, I, see. I, I Look, I was not a Caleb Williams guy yeah. until last summer. When he showed up on this show yeah. and he did the interview and I got a chance to talk with him and I didn't like him when he sat down. Okay. And it was all about the bad words that he'd written on his nails <laughs> the year before and him showing up in an Armani suit and all that stuff. And uh, by the time he left the interview, I was like, you know what? He's 20. <laughs> Where was I when I was 20? True. Thank goodness that I couldn't throw like Caleb Williams and there was nobody following me around. We wouldn't have liked you. No. <laughs> Bad. You know, he's still young. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a bunch of agent attacks and I think the mm. negativity will be spread about him. And I think agents are not going to want to see a guy trying to be the number one pick of the draft who does not have representation. Mm. That's a good point. Keep an eye out well, for that. Well, maybe he'll have a PR, like no agent, but maybe he'll have a PR team. Maybe, but I just, when you hear ugliness, you'll yeah. know what it's about. Okay. Number no three. Uh, I don't know why Australia, but Scottie Pippen, Luke Longley, and Horace Grant have partnered with Australia's National Basketball League for a tour. It's called No Bull. Uh-oh. 
And it will feature them discussing Michael Jordan and the 1990s Chicago Bulls. This tour will begin shortly, February 23rd, in Tasmania, and then head to Melbourne and Sydney. So the people down under are going to have quite a treat here. This um, is Luke Longley driven if it's down there. But okay. is this a response to the last dance? It is, in fact, a response to the last dance. So Pippin has regularly ripped Jordan in the aftermath of that documentary. So I'm going to assume that there's going to be more choice words spoken in Australia. Well, I mean, okay. Why no, do this? But you know, it's, this is like it makes me uncomfortable because it's why? like I, I want to remember the Bulls in a certain way, and I, I, I don't want to hear about all this. All right, but you know, remember Steve Kerr talking about what it was like to be teammates with Michael Jordan. A lot of Bulls have gone out and said the experience wasn't great, or what maybe it was great in some ways. It wasn't, you know, as portrayed in the. In the Last Dance documentary, here's Steve Kerr talking on the Dan Patrick Show about being teammates with Michael Jordan. He tested me. I think he tested everybody. And I think that what you have to do is you have to stand up to him. And uh, and I and not necessarily physically. Basically, he, he talked trash to me and I talked trash back, which wasn't uh, highly advised at the time. <laughs> but it was... Uh, I knew I, I had to stand up for myself, and, and I think that looking back, and even at the time, I, I could see what he was doing. You know, he, Michael wanted to make sure everybody who was out there could deal with the pressure of a playoff game, and if you couldn't deal with his trash talk during practice, then he didn't think you were going to stand up to the pressure during a playoff game, and, and it made sense. I mean, he, he, um, he brought the level of practice up to such a high level that it made us better. So there it is. Like, he was great, and he was difficult, but he was trying to make everybody else great. So why is everybody, like, going and airing the dirty laundry now? I don't know. Maybe I'm alone in this, but, Stephen, I-, I would love to know what you think. Yeah, I think because the, the last dance, I think it made it seem like the others on the Bulls weren't as important or they couldn't take, like, they didn't have the whole winning mentality as Michael Jordan did, which is probably true. But I think it kind of made them come off and look a little worse than what it did when we thought about it going forward. So I think they're just kind of trying to make money off that, but also like defend themselves and say, you know what? It wasn't all just Michael Jordan. Like we were a part of it as well. Scottie Pippen would not be Scottie Pippen without Michael Jordan. Horace Grant, you'd have barely have heard from him. Luke Longley, forget it. Bill Wennington, forget it. Steve Kerr wouldn't be Steve Kerr without Michael Jordan. Like, they have the right, I guess, to go feel like, you know, they need to set the record straight if they feel like they were misportrayed in that documentary, which obviously was done all through the lens, more or less, of Michael Jordan. Well, it should be through the lens of Michael Jordan. He's the greatest player who's ever played. It's his documentary. You're along for the ride if you're those other guys. And, and, And I felt like they had their say. Even Isaiah Thomas, who was not portrayed as well, you know, well in that documentary, got a chance to have his say, you know, but it was it's the story of the Bulls through the eyes of Michael Jordan. So I guess they get their chance to do it, but I'm not as interested in hearing from these guys. Michael Jordan wants to do a tour and talk more. I'm going to listen. Number four. Uh, Let's talk about Kevin Durant teasing a possible role in the mythical 
Seattle Supersonics NBA expansion team. Okay. Uh, he's saying, you know, he was asked if he'd like to be part of a rebooted Sonics franchise if the opportunity became available. He said, without a doubt, I feel like that franchise is an iconic brand in the NBA. It is. I feel that market is a basketball market that needs the influence of an NBA team in that city. Oh, boy. He went on to explain that he thinks having a franchise in Seattle would inspire more kids in that market to pursue playing basketball. There have been frequent NBA expansion rumblings in recent years, as we know, in cities such as Las Vegas and Seattle, uh, which have been considered by Adam Silver. Yeah, Las Vegas and Seattle will get the next two expansion franchises, and the NBA owners need it. It'll be about $3 billion per franchise. Six billion total in franchise expansion fees that'll all go into the pockets of the other owners in the league. They will celebrate the Sonics' return. They will celebrate Vegas being an NBA town, not just an All-Star town. Um, I find it kind of funny though that all these NBA stories are surfacing in these days off around the All-Star games. I think Steven said it well. I think on yesterday's show, these guys are bored. They they're not playing <laughs> basketball. So it's like Durant's talking about this. Draymond Green's talking about nobody should be talking about how to tell him how to play basketball. It's it's uh, you know it's just that time of the season, a lull in the action. Time to hop on the podcast. This is like when you go into the gym and everybody's talking, nobody's working out. Yeah, you're like, what are we we're exercising our lips and our voices today? What are we doing? Number five. Uh. Angel Reese has applied for a trademark for her nickname that she's declared for herself, Bayou Barbie. Yeah. But that has hit a snag because um, her team has been denied the trademark by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Mm. They say that Bayou Barbie is too close to Mattel's Barbie. Yeah trademark and they're saying they're not going to fight that so they got to pivot they got to figure out some other way to brand angel reese i I, um she's so she's not she's not into unnecessarily instigating mattel is is that which is that what this is about right now yeah i think the the move would be not to sell bayou barbie merchandise but to approach barbie and say how about a bayou barbie barbie that yeah. looks like Angel Reese. Uh, yeah. Partner with them. Yeah. You can't beat them. Join them. Oh, yeah, that's good. Have you talked to that? You should, uh, you know. I, that's my her. brain, though, Anna. That's I how I think. Just giving out you free know? marketing advice. Should keep that to myself. But by the way, I mean, she has a great name, Angel Reese. Like, Angel. There's got to be something she can do with that. It's just the, the, the use of the word Barbie. Yeah. You know, yeah. Bayou basketball player, she could she could get that. That would be the smart thing to do, though. Is just to you know do a co-op thing. Yeah, because she partnered with Reebok in last October, as I remember, and so there's a whole portal of products on Reebok's website, and um, they're doing a whole like fashion collection, mm-hmm. and you know, and so and I look here's you know Angel Reese polarizing figure. Some people don't like her. Yeah. Our nine-year-old and seven-year-old don't like her. 
they saw her play. And they were like, we don't like her. It wasn't her play they didn't like. They didn't like the trash talking and Kim Mulkey's act on the sideline at LSU and the coaches all barking at everybody and the officials and all that. They didn't like that. But um, i got to give Angel Reese credit. Like, she comes off a national championship, you know, run, and she's cashed in. And the average contract in the NBA just... Like a year ago, hundred and two thousand dollars. She's making well above that. Oh, like a multiple of twenty or thirty on that. Yeah. So she's cashed in, and she could go to the uh, WNBA after this year, but it's not going to be an automatic decision for her because she's got more eligibility. She could stay in college and make Mm -hmm. more money. Mm -hmm. And we've seen players go to the WNBA and disappear. Really good college players and. I think Sabrina Ionescu has done a nice job of staying visible, Mm -hmm. but players right before her and right after her that were the best players in college basketball kind of disappeared when they went into the WNBA. So I think there is a little bit of, hey, let's see what the salaries are like in the WNBA. There might be more money in college for a player like Angel Reese and a player like Caitlin Clark, who is, Caitlin Clark is now the number one NIL player. In college basketball. Well, I was well, going to ask you about super... Caitlin Clark. Like, do you think that yeah. she should go to the WNBA? Because she still has technically one more year of eligibility because of the COVID thing. There might be more money for Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese in college basketball. And and there is a risk. Like, I think Sabrina's done it right, but Sabrina's done it with the help of Nike. <laughs> and now this NBA three-point contest. Right. She stayed visible. Mm-hmm. She did what other players right before her and right after her did not do. So Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark, got it. they have decisions to make, and I will not be surprised if we see the top women's college basketball players sticking around. I'll ask our next guest about it, Talia Von Olhoffen, star player at Oregon State. I'll ask her about that. I'll ask her about Caitlin Clark, Angel Reese, women's college basketball, what it's like to hit a game winner, all that coming up. Okay, so I have three daughters, the two youngest daughters, happen to be watching UCLA, Oregon State. Friday night, I'm watching it with them. I thought it was one of the best basketball games that I've ever seen. The final quarter of that game was an instant classic, back and forth. Uh, two heavyweight teams exchanging punches. No Reagan beers for Oregon State. She left in the second quarter. Oregon State still fought on. Nothing was coming easy for Oregon State. That was the thing that got me. UCLA was getting points in the paint. Nothing was easy. For Oregon State, and the Beavers found a way down the stretch and shots on the call. Here we go. Now it's Hansford inbounding. Talia for the win. She's got it. She's got it. She's got it. Oh, my goodness. She's got it. Talia Von Olhoffen with the game winner, uh, Oregon State women's program in the top ten, back where they belong. Talia's joining us now. Uh, my my daughters were screaming, running around the living room. You did that. You did that for everybody in Gill Coliseum. How'd that feel? It felt amazing. Um, just the last couple minutes of that game were, were insane, and you don't really realize until – you know, later looking back on it, that moment at the end was so emotional. But um, just watching the the whole last couple of minutes back, um, just an amazing game of basketball and it was super fun to be a part of and obviously an amazing crowd. So I was just super happy that we got the win and, and put on a show for, for Beaver Nation. 
I said nothing came easy. I mean, it looked like nothing was really easy for you guys. You weren't getting a lot of points in the paint. You were having to make tough shots, and, you know, you don't have Reagan out there with you. Um, how did that feel down the stretch as you were fighting? And I think at one point you're down six, you guys come back. What did that feel like to be part of a game like that? Yeah, I think that's just the beauty of this team. Um, you know, we were kind of mismatched um, in the post, obviously, Betts was getting really good looks around the rim, and, and that's super frustrating because we're a team that, that doesn't give up layups very often. Um, so I was super proud of just how we responded to that, and we knew that you know, we just kind of had to dig in and figure it out and find a way, and we hit really tough shots, like you said, and, and in the last couple of minutes found a way to um, you know, get, get Lauren out from around the rim and, and got a couple of steals and just made plays. Um, and that's just super um, – just the beauty of the team, like I said. I mean, we just dig in and we find a way to win, and, and we all want to win so bad. And so we just we do whatever it takes, and, and that's what we did in that fourth quarter. So it was just amazing and, and almost an out of body experience to do it in front of that many fans. You got emotional in the post game, both with uh, the Pac 12 Network crew and then later in the news conference. And, you know, you thanked your coach, you thanked fans, you thanked your teammates, you, you thanked your coach for sticking with you. What did you mean by that? Um, I think just our relationship over the years, um, I've I've had some ups and downs and, and with the program just figuring so much out and having a rough freshman year, turning around, kind of rebuilding, only only winning four games um, and then going through my injury last year and not really being able to perform the way I want to um, physically. It's just been a ride um, and I think just – maintaining that relationship and problem solving with him and, and I feel like this year we've gotten a lot closer and um like you said I feel I feel like I'm working with him and, and we're a good team and so I don't know I'm just I'm very grateful for him and so much of our success as a team this year is is credit to him and, and what he's built and um the culture of this team is is just something that he emphasizes so much um and so yeah it's just just an emotional moment from from where we started and the whole journey and then to to have a game like that and Gill in front of a, you know, a packed house, uh, it was just, it was just amazing. The, you know, the experience of hitting a big shot like that—that's something you know people practice in their driveway when no one's around. You've got, you know, great genes and a dad who played in the NFL, mom who played college basketball. I have to think there were some uh, driveway basketball games that were that that were physical and competitive. What was that like growing up in that household? Yeah, super competitive. Uh, obviously, my parents, but I have two older sisters that, you know, I, I competed with my whole life. And and I told them this actually over the weekend, but, you know, growing up watching them play, um, older sisters nine years older than me and then four years older than me is the other one. And so just growing up in a gym watching them play and, and idolizing them and wanting to be like them. And, and I remember my a big motivation of mine was just that I wanted to be better of the, better than them. And I was just so competitive. Um, in that way. So, yeah, definitely a lot of moments like that in the backyard and a lot of games of one-on-one and, um, and things like that. So, I mean, so much credit to them for, for giving me that competitive spirit. You could have left Oregon State, right? I mean, it wasn't easy, as you mentioned, freshman, sophomore. You know, you, you guys weren't getting the success. Um, there's the portal. There's NIL. It's a complicated world that you're, you're playing in now and living in. You stuck with Oregon State. What made you stay there and know that this was going to end up in a year now where you're in the top ten? 
Yeah, I think um, there were definitely so many moments of doubt and moments when when things get hard and and you want to do you know take the easy way out um, whatever that might be. But I think it's just looking in the mirror at why I came here, what I can do better, and just just having the belief in in Coach Ruick and in this program and and in my teammates that are coming back that that we can be something special. Um, and just kind of digging into that and putting putting everything into that. Um, and so I think, yeah, just the, the belief that we could get to this point um, just never wavered for me. And, and I'm very clear on what I want and what I came here to do. And so um, just leaning in on that and um, showing up every day to a team that's committed and, and works super hard and, and loves each other and just has fun makes it makes it really easy. And so I think that's that's what's allowed us to have so much success this year is just we all want the same things. We all love each other, um, and and we just have fun and we compete every day, and and it pays off. The adrenaline of Friday night. How do you get to sleep after that? Or, or what is that? What does your phone look like when you get back to the locker room and you finally get a chance to look at your phone? What what is that? What's that like? Yeah, uh, it was hard. I, I definitely didn't get much sleep that night. Um, I mean, uh, I think close to midnight, a couple hours. After um, that shot, I was still in the locker room. Uh, my best friend is, is a manager on the team, and we were just sitting on the couch, and my heart was, like, still racing. I felt like I could run a marathon. Um, I was ready to go play USC right then and there. Um, it was just an incredible moment. And, yeah, not a lot of sleep, but, you know, we had practice the next morning, so I <laughs> had to dig in and figure it out um, and then got, got some rest the next night. But, yeah, it was definitely – a little bit overwhelming opening my phone, for sure. We're talking to Talia Von Olhoffen, Oregon State basketball player. They are number nine in the latest AP rankings, 10-4 and four in conference play. You're right on the heels of Stanford. you got USC, Colorado, UCLA, Utah, all the game back of you, of you or right around you in the standings. Uh, how important is this next stretch for you guys? You're, you're at Washington State. How important is it for you guys to finish – get the best possible seating for the conference tournament? You know, what are you guys talking about? What are you focused on? Yeah, I think what has allowed us to be so successful this year, um, the way that we play is that we just take everything one day at a time, one possession at a time, one game at a time. So we're getting ready for Friday night and it's easy to look at seating and look ahead. And obviously we want to host the first couple rounds, but I think the best thing for us, and especially playing in a tough conference like we do, you just you just got to take it one game at a time. And, and both Washington schools on the road are, are tough contests, um, definitely not anything you can overlook. So we're getting ready for Friday night, and then we'll get ready for UW, and, and that's kind of what it's going to look like the next, the next four games. Um, and so just applying everything that we've learned, I think Sunday was a big lesson in rebounding. So we're looking to clean that up, and, and we've been really focusing on that this week. So just continuing to improve and, and take it one day at a time. All right, this is a question my wife wanted me to ask you because, you know, we see the motto, we are family, and we've seen that for a couple of years, and you see players like Aaliyah Goodman who have been around the program, and, and you know, you can say that, but it is evident that you guys really do sort of view yourselves as a family. And in the post game, you're talking about fans, you're talking about teammates, you're talking about coaches, it's not all about you you know, you check, you hit all the right points, all the right notes. That's coming from somewhere within the culture of the program. What is Scott Ruick doing to foster sort of the idea that it's it's all hands on deck? You need everybody, especially on a night when Reagan goes down, and you know you gotta you gotta find a way to win. 
Yeah, I think just the, the emphasis on relationships and, and caring about each other on the court and taking the time to get to know each other. I think um, over the summer and in the in the fall and the preseason, um, obviously going to Italy this year I think was a huge um, part of the chemistry of this team. I mean, spending 11 days or some somewhere around there in another country and, and you're kind of all you got and there's, you know, so many bus rides, so many conversations and we all just got so close on that trip and then you know we do another team retreat in September so just a lot of opportunities and and emphasis on building those relationships and connections and and it really is a family and I think part of it is recruiting and and Scott getting to know each player during the recruiting process and and making sure that they're a right fit and will fit into that and and really embrace that. Um, And I think he said it in the presser one time but 13 for 13 on that we just have um, 13 girls that just love each other and embrace the culture and, and want to win and care about each other both on and off the court. And that just makes it so easy to compete and so easy, easy to hold each other to a high standard and, and just have fun every day. Reagan's injury, is she, has she been back around? Is she going to be okay? Yep, she's she's back around. Um, she broke her nose, but you know we're hoping to have her back soon, and, and she's doing good. Yeah, she grew up with football player brothers. I got to think that, you know, she's going to be all right. It's probably not the first time she's got hit in the face playing basketball, but still wasn't good to see that. Uh, we're talking to Talia von Olhoffen. Um, your parents' influence. You know, you have a dad who played high-level football, mom who played high-level college basketball. Um, you know, and then you talk about the older sisters. Like, you know, I always say the youngest in our family, she's a fighter. Is that the same in same uh, true of your family as well, and what do you get from dad? Maybe more specifically, I saw him walking around the Maui Invitational a couple years ago, and I thought, "Gosh, he looks right at home in Hawaii." Yeah, I think that that competitive spirit definitely comes from a family of of two sisters and two parents that that want to win at everything they do. Um, you know, board games in the driveway, whatever it is. Um, I just I've always been like that, and I think I would I think my family would agree that that I am the most competitive and I, I am the fighter. Um, that's kind of just the way that I grew up. And um, so I think you can, you can see that uh, in my game. And um, I think my mom more than anyone um, was, was that way. And just um, her thing when she played in college was defense. Uh, so I, we were talking about the other day, I think, I think I'm catching up to her in that area. I've always been, you know, a better shooter, better, whatever, but um, she was, you know, led her conference and, and steals and was really into defense so i'm trying to get like her in that aspect um but yeah obviously my dad too played at a very high level and so just being surrounded by that growing up and and setting high expectations for myself and and working really hard towards towards the things that i want that all comes from comes from them and and wanting to be like my sisters too what's your favorite class at oregon state My favorite subject my whole life has been math. I'm really into into numbers, so I think anything with that, I really like taking statistics here. Um, just anything with math, I'd say. I used to hate kids like you because it came, did it come easy for you? Like, math was the worst for me. Like, what a blessing that you love that. Yeah, yeah, I was one of those kids that I enjoyed going to calculus. I enjoyed all those things, so... But I, I get you. I think I've heard that from a lot of people that that's I'm one of the more annoying people to be around. <laughs> no, I mean it. I mean that with a lot of love. Like you know, just like bless you 
for that being your thing. One of my daughters is that way, and I go, you're, you don't know, you have no idea how, uh, how different that math experience will be for you if you enjoy this. But uh, to me, it was like a foreign language. You know, give me an idea. Like, all right, after basketball, how can you utilize your love for math to maybe uh, a side hustle? I mean, is there an angle here for, for, for you? <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that. I haven't thought about it too much. Um, I want to play as long as I can and then probably get into coaching. But um, if I don't end up coaching, maybe something in sports with some sort of analytics or statistics or something like that. I'm sure I, I'm sure I can make it useful. Help me with this because I'm watching, you know, some of the high-level women's college basketball players are making good money now in NIL. And it's good to see. Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark – they're making it in a way that I think is going to make them think about, is there more money to be made in college than the WNBA? Do you think that that NIL could keep some of the better players in college basketball, or will the dream always be to be a professional? Uh, I don't. I think uh, with NIL, it's, it's endorsements, it's brand deals, um, it's things like that. So, a lot of the times, um, you know, they can keep making that money off their own name, even though they're professional. Um, I mean, I know they have collectives and stuff where it's kind of in a roundabout way coming from the school. But I think for the most part, if you have the following and the engagement and um, and all those things, then you can definitely carry it over and continue making money in the W. Um, I think the W is just so competitive and, and so many limited roster spots that mm-hmm. – you know, if, if you're not confident that you'll find the right fit or, you know, college is just a, a one-time thing, very, very short window. So, I mean, it's it's definitely given up a lot to go um, into a league where, you know, spots are hard to come by, come by and it's so competitive. So I don't, I don't know if NIL would be, would be the thing keeping people in college, in my opinion, but um, I also don't know how much people are making. So right. uh, I think that's my thoughts on it. There's a number out there, I'm sure, that would make you think. But uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, I was rooting for Sabrina. I thought she represented herself well. I love that she shot from the NBA line. Did you watch that? Did you guys talk about it? Was Were you pulling for Sabrina? What were your thoughts on that? Um. Yeah, I didn't watch it live. Um, we had practice, and then, like I said, I didn't get a lot of sleep that Friday <laughs> night, so I was sleeping sleeping through the contest. But, yeah, I watched it back. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things. I think I think the outcome was as perfect as it could have been. Obviously, Steph's one of the greatest shooters of all time. Um, and so to compete with him and get a score that w- I think would have won the regular competition um, and shooting from the NBA line, I thought, I thought she did really well and, and represented women's basketball well. And it was just good for the game and, and obviously the viewership and the numbers in that in that little window with that competition was, I think, I want to say the most viewed of, of the night. So it was just super cool to see. And um, I hope more things can happen like that going forward. But, yeah, I think she, she put on for women's basketball. And so that was just that was just super amazing and, and um, amazing of Steph to do that as well. Yeah, I, I looked at it, and I was like, I didn't want to see the dunk competition. I didn't even want to see the game. That was the only thing I wanted to watch. I was interested in it, and then I thought, I was impressed that because the pressure, right, and you know, everybody going, well, is she going to shoot from the NBA line, the WNBA line, all that stuff, and, and in the end, I thought, wow, Steph won, but I thought Sabrina won, I thought the NBA won, I thought TV won. I mean, there were just a lot of winners that night. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that was a win for, for everyone, and, and I'm the same way. I mean, I didn't watch any of it live, but that was the only thing I was looking forward to watching back and the only thing I was really really paying attention to, and I think a lot of people could say that. Um, for sure, I think All-Star Weekend isn't maybe as exciting as it used to be, and that was definitely something that I was looking forward to. Um, so, yeah, it was just it was just super cool, and I don't think it, it could have uh, worked out better. All right, we know you as a basketball player, we see you play, but um, you know we now know that you're into math. We know about the competition with your family. Um, do you have a guilty pleasure? Is it a Dutch Bros? Is it a Netflix show? Is it you know what's uh, what's uh, Talia's von Olhoffen's guilty pleasure? Um, I think I like playing like card games or or any sort of board games, stuff like that. I'm I'm very competitive, so any. Uno, you know, all those games that you can play on the bus or whatever it is. Yeah. I love doing that, and I love, you know, getting getting friends together to do that. So that's, that's my favorite thing probably outside of basketball to do. Do you take money from your teammates in those card games? <laughs> no, I don't I don't play for money. Um, I wouldn't do that to them. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's all uh, just bragging rights. <laughs> all right, Talia, keep it going. I'll see you in Vegas. Uh, congrats on what you guys have done. I know you say, hey, uh, you're just getting started, but it's been a lot of fun to watch you guys this season. Sounds good. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I'm excited to keep it going. All right. There she goes. Talia von Olhoffen um, hit the big shot on Friday night. They beat UCLA. They're in the top ten. Number nine, Oregon State uh, will we'll, uh, attempt to keep it going. We will be live broadcasting from the women's Pac-12 basketball tournament. It's March 6th through the 10th, and we will be in Vegas with this radio show. We'll be there for the men's tournament as well the following week with live broadcast from T-Mobile Arena. All of that still on the BFT. Leave it here for some parting thoughts coming up. Love that interview with Talia Von Olhoff, and if you missed it, grab the podcast. Share it with uh, friends and family. Really good team. Scott Ruick's got it going. Reagan Beers, his center hopefully she'll get back in the lineup they'll need her if they're going to threaten in the portland regional and i think they are a prime candidate to get assigned into the portland regional maybe host a first and second round and um, have an easier path possibly to an elite eight sweet 16 final four situation but they're not going to do it without reagan beers healthy talia von olhoff and reagan beers to mia gardner um team is uh Really just um, deep and good. There's layers to it. Scott Ruick, you've heard him on this show, says it reminds him of his team that played in the Final Four. But they still they still really haven't done anything, right? They're ninth. They're 21-4. and four, That They haven't done that thing. And so the question, I think, for a lot of times for teams, and I'm going to put Oregon State and Washington State in this same boat, Oregon State women's program, Washington State men's program. The uh, question is, you know, here they are. They've had great seasons to this point. They're both ranked. I think Oregon State could be an Elite Eight team in the women's bracket with the right matchups. I think Washington State men could be a Sweet 16 team. But they need to get to Vegas in good shape uh, as far as their seeding is concerned. And I think it's really important in the women's bracket for the Pac-12 women's teams to be the two seed and not be have to be on the same side as the bracket as uh as Stanford because you don't want to have to play Stanford until you get 
to the conference championship game. So you want to be two or three and not four on the women's side because one and four are on the same side of the bracket. So that's Oregon State's goal right here in the uh, final stretch of the season. And I think if you talk to the players, they say they would like to be the one seed. Uh, but uh, you're going to have to get by Stanford to do that. Stanford has been very good this season. Um, it makes me think, too, about the couple things. The Oregon State men's program with Wayne Tinkle. Struggling, struggling, struggling. It's been a struggle for Wayne Tinkle in the last three seasons. And I think since his Elite Eight run during the pandemic, it has been a lot of work and a lot of agony and a lot of losing. Oregon State's men's program, 1-39 in 39 on the road in their last 40. Steven, 1-39 in their last 40 games on the road. That is, uh, that's not great, John. Not great at all. Problem for Oregon State is you owe Wayne Tinkle $8.7 million at the end of this season if you fire him. I don't think they're going to fire him for that reason. Unless he came to them and said, this isn't working for me either, and let's find a way out of this, I think Wayne Tinkle gets another year. And the question is, does he lose Jordan Pope in the portal? He didn't last off season, And can his young guys step up? Can he get in the portal and get better? So I'm thinking about you know Wayne Tinkle and the problem that men's basketball is at Oregon State. And what do you think the problem is there? Is it, it he doesn't have the guys when I see them play? No, he doesn't have the guys. That's one. I I don't know though because here's the thing about Tinkle is he has been a really good X's and O's coach. He, he's won when there isn't an, as much talent at Oregon yep. State. I mean, thinking back to the GP two days, got to the NCAA tournament. Like that team wasn't that talented yet. They got to the NCAA tournament. Then you know the COVID year, uh, they had Trace Tinkle. Like they they won that first game in Vegas before everything got shut down with the pandemic. Like they weren't a terrible team. But they also weren't super talented. Then the Elite Eight team, the Elite Eight run happens. They had Ethan Thompson, who's a fringe G League player right now. Like, he actually can coach. I think he just needs to get better talent, like you said. It doesn't have to be elite talent. It just has to be better than what it is. But I also think just now, especially with the uncertainty of the conference and just their uncertainty that they have at Oregon State, and they've been down the last couple of years, he hasn't really adapted much to the NIL and transfer portal. Uh, he's lost some guys that way. He hasn't really used that to his advantage. I think it's on him almost outside of the court. Like He's got to figure out the off-the-court issues first with Oregon State before they can start winning. And now that the fact that they're going to the West Coast Conference, maybe that hurts them even more, and they're trying to get more talented or lose talent that way. Yeah, maybe. I think he's got it. He has to get in the portal. They've got to get NIL lined up. I think it's going to be really hard given that they're going to the WCC essentially to play basketball next season. Be hard to get better players, but I wonder if playing WCC competition will be better, any worse. I don't know. I think the Pac 12 wasn't all that strong this year, except for Arizona and Washington State at the top of the conference. And, you know, I think Oregon's been okay. Colorado's been all right. Utah's been all right. But, you know, it's not as if they're going to go to the West Coast Conference and, you know, compete for the title. Like, that's just not going to happen. They're going to be a middling team, if not towards the bottom half of the conference in that one as well. Like, unless they get a bunch of talent coming in this offseason, that's just where they are as a program right now. And you're right. Like, they, Oregon State just can't afford to fire Wayne Tingle right now. Like, I, I, it was a mistake to give him that contract extension after the Elite Eight. And I think right now it's really, it's really hurting the Beavs because they can't afford to fire that guy. 
Because, yeah, you could bring in a guy that's unknown that may be great, maybe not. But if it doesn't work out, then you're in real trouble. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, Tankle has got to win more games. I do think he's a good coach. I just don't think he has players. And I worry if he loses um, if he loses Jordan Pope, he's in real trouble. Um, so we will be live from Vegas. Men's Tournament T-Mobile Arena. Uh, on uh, And that is March uh, 13th through the 16th, 12th through the 16th at T-Mobile Arena. And then the women's program, uh, the women's tournament, will be at the MGM uh, Event Center, and that is uh, March 6th through the 10th. So we'll be live from both of those things.